This is The New Right, a podcast for the lost arts, reclaiming the literary holy land from the heathen. This is Matt Pegas. And this is Dan Baltic. And we're here with our friend and fellow traveler, Astral. Astral, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, man. It's a real honor to be here. I'm, uh, I'm thrilled to be with you. Yes, and we're Absolutely. thrilled to have you. Um, for anyone who doesn't know, uh, Astral is, you're a blogger, you're a podcaster, you kind of came onto the scene at a somewhat similar time to us. And as we were kind of just talking about, I think that, that, that your pod and your, your blogging and our podcast and what we're all about, we're, we're kind of on the same, uh, same wavelength. Um, you, you, your, your podcast is, would you say it's, it's, it's pretty literary focused, right? I try to make it that way. Yeah. I do veer off the topic, but that is my primary interest. It's my primary uh, topic of knowledge. Um, you know, I have a, uh, I'm, how do I say this? I'm uh, formally trained in writing and literature. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's, it's, you know, what I um, aspire to do just took me decades longer than I expected when I first started. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, well we get that. I think, um, correct me if I'm, I should know this other than I have, correct me if I'm wrong, Dan, or if you don't want to even say this, but you, you were an English major too, right? Oh yeah. No, I was yeah. an English major and a creative writing minor. So yeah. I, I trained to not have a job. So I went to law school, <laughs> obviously. Yeah. Um, no, and I, I was an English major. As you said, Astral, it's like you, uh, we were very much cut from that same cloth. All three of us, I think it's like you, go to college and TR are also our mutual friend TR Hudson. I think this applies to very well. Um, He's also, a good guy. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the thing you, you, it's a, it's a common type across like, I don't know, a certain kind of educated guy, uh, you know, where you, you're just literary, you, you read novels, you want to write, you, you like both writing fiction and, uh, writing about fiction. And then, you know, the, the real world, uh, you realize there's not a lot of money in that you go off, you have whatever career, but some of us kind of find our way back to doing it online. And in our case, we do it online with a sort of a political or cultural edge to it uh, toward a certain purpose. And we find ourselves in at a pretty similar space. You know, I tried to do that life for a little while and it got to a point where I was like, okay, this is, this is not for me. I'm, I'm basically just a fucking bum. Uh, I did produce some writing, but uh, I got my shit together and I didn't go to law school, but I, I went to uh, training in a vocation and mm-hmm. got a career and moved on. But, you know, I've always wanted to do something literary and it's, you know, maybe we can talk about this later, but I never really produced the amount of writing that I wanted to. Um, it's fulfilling to write on your own for yourself, but to really produce a volume that's like you can do something with is takes a dedication that I, I never had really 
but I'm finding podcasting to be, and I, I imagine you guys feel the same way, a good outlet uh, to k- kind of fulfill that need, scratch that itch without having to totally dedicate your entire life to it. Um, mm-hmm. You're able to share your ideas. You're able to share your thoughts, your perspective. You meet like-minded people such as yourselves. Um, I wanted to say my two goals when I started my podcast, which is it's a modest podcast. It's only been going on for about two months. I have a decent amount of, of subscribers. Um, but my two goals were to meet like-minded people and make new friends, which I'm already doing, which I'm, I'm thrilled about. And the other one is to make the Thiel Bucks, but those haven't come yet. <laughs> that's, uh, that's a similar occurrence for uh, many people uh, I have heard. Yeah, no. Um, again, that's like the more, the more I hear from you, the more it's like, yeah, pr- pretty, pretty relatable for our pod. I mean, we, yeah, as you said, it is it is a really nice, a really good creative outlet. Um, the, one of the great upshots of it is definitely uh, a meeting people and meeting people online. And, and, and I'm happy to say, like, your pod and, and ours, we, we've got a lot of mutual friends. I couldn't help it. I mean, our last two guests have been Raw Egg Nationalist and Gio Panicetti, two people that you've interviewed in the last, like, two months as well. Like, we're definitely within the same network of people. But it's a great it's a great group of people and, like, people that you learn a lot from and people that you enjoy, enjoy knowing. And then, yeah, even on the, even on the teal bucks, you know, it seems like, uh, <laughs> I mean, I don't, I, I don't know how much, I don't know much about the mythic teal bucks, but they, they seem to be out there in some, in some capacity. And uh, <laughs> I do think uh, this ecosystem we're operating in with these podcasts is like, we, we are, we are cultivating, you know, a new, a new kind of subcultural ground. Wouldn't you say? Yeah. I thought um, you were gonna say we we're cultivating mass. I don't even know if the if the teal. I don't. Did you get that reference? No, I don't actually. even. <laughs> okay, it's always sunny in Philadelphia. Gotcha. <laughs> I, I don't even know if the teal bucks exist. To be honest with you, but they say that it it does. But with or without that, uh, something's going on. There, there's a, a subculture Absolutely. is being born. And I was, uh, I told you guys before, I was like a slightly like I don't know even know what the word is intimidated maybe uh dismayed and uh, and and anxious when i found your pod because i was like fuck somebody beat me to it <laughs> these guys are doing exactly what i want to do oh and right and this is to your point about how we had the same similar guests uh, uh so i'm like great we got all the same guests and and those guys were doing it before me but i listened through i listened to a bunch of episodes um, which were all very good and I realized that there is enough of a difference between what we do and everybody's, you know, because everybody's going to bring their own individuality to it. Everybody yeah. has their own individual perspective. Uh, in fact, I'm looking forward to hearing your take and, you know, we can get to it when you're ready. But uh, to talk, we're going to talk about some books and, and some stuff that I've written about. And I'm really excited to hear the different interpretations. You know, that's one of the things uh, not to be too tangential. That's one okay. of the things that's really fulfilling about what we do. Um, and tell me if you guys have had this experience. You'll read a book um, and at some point, maybe right away or maybe uh, years later, and it'll strike you like, I get it now. I get it. The yeah. whole thing clicks and you share it with somebody and or, or several people. And some people come back and say, you know, I never saw it like that, but you're right. I get it. And they'll start asking you questions, but other people will come with their interpretation and it'll be totally different. And you're like, well, man, I had the whole thing figured out and, and I never would have seen that, but you know, you're right. Absolutely. Yeah. No. And also I'm... it's just like the space that we're in is the fact that we both have podcasts that are similar to me is a good thing. 
it's a good sign. Yeah, for it's sure. It's a sign that the space that we're in is growing and um, that, you know, we probably, you know, practically speaking, are boosting each other's audience for just sure. by existing because people listen to your pod and they're like, oh, I want to, you know, hear more about dissident literature. Let me uh, look into this and then yeah. they find us and vice versa, I assume. Yeah, it's a kind of mutually affirmative, like, like almost proof of concept on on each other's part. It's like if someone else had the same idea, and, and you know, someone else out there are you know thought it was a good a good enough idea to bring it into fruition. I mean, it's it's basically affirmative. And and then like yeah, it's not like podcasts are in competition. No one's out there saying I only listen to one podcast. People want to hear more, and even if it's the same guest, if someone's really interested in that person, they'll actually seek out you know for their interviews. Um, so I think it's a really good effect. And yeah, to that point, like it, it is, you know, something's going on subculturally and, um, you know, I think podcasting, it can be a very, uh, you know, sort of non egotistical art form. It's, it's all about, it's, it's a very like pro social, um, you know, kind of sharing the mic sometimes literally, uh, you know, helping yeah. to boost each other is, is what podcasting is all about. It's like the, the good element of social media meets um you know something artistic um and i think that's one of the you know if you look at other really successful podcasts like the perfume nationalist for example pretty much all of the major guests that jack regularly has all have their own podcasts you know it, it and people used to crack jokes about that like oh everybody's got a podcast but it's it's kind of like <laughs> the, the metaphor it's not like um competing sports teams or something it's like bands in a scene you know what i mean like no one's well, like oh i can't be friends you know like there's a lot of punk bands and they all play together you know that it's it's like that it's that kind of DIY thing. yeah and they and they feed off each other you want to know how i see it though is um it's like a revival or or an, an evolution of like the literary criticism scene, especially the journals of like the, the 60s and 70s when it was really thriving. Um, part of the reason I'm doing what I'm doing is because I was always my whole life voraciously consuming uh, magazines like The New Yorker, The Atlantic, yeah. The New Republic, mainly for like the literary reviews and even some online stuff. And I slowly noticed and it, and it and it was slow. I mean, I watched the process. Think about being my age. I'm Gen X. As I did watch this whole process play out over time, um, and I was in denial about it for a while before I finally realized what was happening, was everything went woke. Yeah. And, and identity politics and uh, uh, ideology snuck in and it, it totally defined uh, all. Uh, it defined culture but it also defined criticism you know and and it's yeah. like like that's that's the antithesis of what criticism is supposed to be so i like to see what we're doing uh as like uh uh the 21st century version of the literary criticism scene like i see you guys as journalists and i see myself as like mm -hmm. a journalist you know um, absolutely i'm glad you said that because in our sphere right journalist is like the biggest <laughs> insult possible but 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 i do and and of course we're not journalists it's not what we're doing but we're replacing them you know what i mean mm -hmm. we're stepping exactly. up and filling the void that, that because they fucking dropped the ball fuck can i swear yeah, <laughs> yeah of course well not can. of course some people uh, some people don't like swears on their pod but we're we're a pretty uh we're we're a pretty like degenerate pod i would say <laughs> swear, yeah, swear speaking yeah. of degenerate i was a new yorker subscriber for many many years me too bro me too and yeah new yorker atlantic all of them 
And the same thing happened, you know, eventually it just, it got too woke and you, you can't really, um, you know, if you have that mind virus, like you can't really write about anything in a, in a really informative and insightful way anymore. It's just, it's totally compromised and it's impossible to like read that stuff and, you know, come away with anything meaningful. So yeah, I don't subscribe to the New Yorker anymore. I don't subscribe yeah. to any of them. And I mean, that's like a big reason why we started this pod is because it's uh, Matt and I were talking about it and we're like, well, there's nothing like this out there and we want to build something that you would want to listen to or we would want to read. Definitely. Yeah, we're we're kindred spirits for sure. Um you don't I don't, you know, I don't know if you guys like reveal what your ages are or anything, but uh can you imagine, I mean, maybe this applies to you personally, but for me as an older guy, can you imagine being a young man growing up uh, underneath the thumb of this? You know what I mean? Like oh having my God. This, it the seems same terrible. curiosity that we have and the same interests that we have. And you go out into the world, like excited to try. And um, I think I kind of talked about this with Lomez a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, to, you try to discover other like-minded people and, and you want to have these conversations and then you fucking pick up something like, the New Yorker or something even worse, like Harper's or Atlantic, um, uh, the New Republic, which is Mark Zuckerberg's, of course. Right. I think so. Um, yeah. Yeah, it is. It is now. And 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 I don't it, it would be very difficult. I think at least it would be more difficult for a guy like that to let this part of himself like flourish. Actually, you had T.R. Hudson on. He's a younger guy. Yeah. And, uh, I, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe you're the same age. I don't know. So, I mean, well, I, I'm not. I'm OK. Age doxing. I'm 27. So I, I count as. OK. Yeah. So you guys are the same age. Uh, right? Yeah. I think yeah, T.R. and I'm, I are similar age. Yeah. I'm 36. So I am at the, the elder side of the millennial, uh, you know, grouping. Matt is at the the younger, I guess, side exactly. of the millennials. Yeah, um, so we we span the uh, the generation span here. the generation. But to your point, Astral, I mean, I think it's gotten worse even since I was in high school and since I was in college. But I definitely that's a big part of my origin story is was as a young man interested in literature, interested in criticism and stuff about literature, interested in the life of the mind, and um, kind of seeing that in real time go from uh you know pretty woke to extremely and uh totalitarianly woke uh, over the span of my I, I was in college from 20 2013 to 2017 so you can imagine you know 2013 yeah. 2014 is when a lot of it was really getting started and i was like this shit is insane but it was yeah, obviously yeah, yeah. picking up steam and then after trump forget it you know um it's just been uh, you know, completely, completely totalitarian. Uh, no, not totalitarian, like totalitarian government, but you know what I mean. Totally totalizing yeah. in its grip on the culture. Um, totally, this, this kind of stuff. The wokeness, or I mean, whatever you want to call it, wokeness doesn't even do it justice. But you know, and, and as a young, uh, young white guy <laughs> with with an interest in the life and the mind, um, it's like you know this persistent message of like we don't want you. Like please leave. Like that's that's pretty much what it is constantly that kind of stuff not to be not to self-plug too much that kind of i i've written one novel i'm not a prolific fiction writer but i've written one novel it's out on terror house and that sort of perspective uh definitely finds its way in there because it was definitely an interesting and troubling time to come up in and uh you know i i was i tried to sort of redeem myself with it and and i i used to be a lot more liberal than i am now but I, at some Same. point you just kind of uh reject it and you know fully 
Uh, we talked about this with Rog Nationalist last week. It's like, do you have, you know, he, and he talked about how he's always been like kind of, kind of based, like just kind of been into nutrition and, and a, a bit of a traditionalist for almost as long as he can remember. It's almost like you're either like that or you have a kind of road to Damascus moment. Uh, I'm a little more road to Damascus and it kind of came after a long period of uh, living, living under this. I, I'm curious. I mean, I was going to ask you like not to get too into detail if you don't want to, but kind of what your origin story into getting on this corner of Twitter was. Okay. Well, there's, I, you know, the thing is, is the, the route that I took, well, I, you know what I, because I, I kind of had two moments two I don't know what to call them, just two moments. Um, the first was discovering bronze age pervert. Mm-hmm. The second was similar but but also wholly different and that was discovering zero hp lovecraft and they're they're very distinct experiences of discovering the two for for me but Mm -hmm. by the time i discovered zero i was already fully i have already fully kind of shed my former life as a as a normie and of you know was fully red-pilled so the experience of discovering his work wasn't much about the politics and it was much more about the art. So um, just to quickly give the story, because I talked about this in my episode with Yarvin, but because it was Yarvin, I didn't want to uh, talk too much. So I didn't really fully <laughs> tell the story, you know, and it's really it's really a story of like my entire my entire life story to, that kind of led me to where I am. I hear you, yeah. um, but but, to you know, fast forward to speed run the first 20 years of my adulthood. Uh-huh. <laughs> um Growing up in the in the late 90s and the early 2000s, I was pretty, pretty much an unaffiliated uh, leftist anarchist, but not in the vein of um, uh, the Marxists bent or the the black bloc people or whatever they are now. Antifa. Yeah. yeah, Do you guys remember black bloc or do people? Oh, yeah. yeah. uh, The WTO. Exactly. Exactly. See, and I, I, I try to actually kind of gave up on this but i'll 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 revive this argument that um it was actually redeemable to be a leftist back then because of the the things you were against were like the wto and like the invasion of iraq and things like that and and, Mm -hmm. and bush um but i don't want to give people the wrong impression though because because anarchism has a tradition of having marxist and socialist ideals but it also has a tradition of being like violently opposed to socialism and Marxism and American anarchism has a very different strain than European anarchism does. And it doesn't have uh, as much of like the socialist ideals behind it. It has much more to do with like the personal independence and like the frontier spirit. So the guys that really were inspiring me um, were like literary guys, Hunter S Thompson, Robert Anton Wilson, Philip K. Dick, uh, What's his name? Less so, less so um, Terrence McKenna, but uh, I was and um, uh, uh, Ken Kesey, Jack Carroll. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, these are probably all names, that, right, that you guys know. Right. Yeah. And so I mean much more in that vein. Oh, for sure. I, so, I mean, it's almost like this myth now mythic thing called the left libertarian. I don't know if that's how you yes, describe it, it but that's yeah. No, I, no, but you're getting at exactly what I was saying about the word anarchism. I'm actually... Uh, I don't really like any of these words. I don't like right wing. I hate libertarian, but but it's accurate. It definitely accurate describes my mindset at the time. You know, and I was a young guy and it was like uh, much more about like being rebellious and being independent. Right. 
as time went on, I sort of kind of morphed into a normie. I had kids, I had family. Uh, Obama became the president. And although I don't think he was a good president, things kind of like chilled out in America for like a while. You know what I mean? Like things yeah. seemed to stabilize and you kind of could get away for a little while with being um, disconnected, apolitical. Um, Occupy Wall Street happened and you're kind of like into it and behind it, but it wasn't it wasn't life changing. It didn't it didn't cause any major, you know, it wasn't the 2020 riots. It didn't cause any major. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah it's an interesting waves. It didn't cause any yeah. major waves. Not in at culture. all. Yeah. In fact, looking back on it, right, it looks like it was the death of something and, and, and sort of uh, something rose from the ashes. And what rose from the ashes was like 2015, 2016. Now, believe it or not, I kind of sat all that out. Um, I, I kind of stayed a normie really, really up until probably like 2020 COVID. Now, in the meantime, I had come across Yarvin and Moldbug's work because of people I met online, just talking about philosophy and literature. Yeah. Um, his name would come up a lot. And that eventually led me to BAP. And like, um, I don't want to get too political, but um, I, I, you can't you can't talk about Bronze Age pervert without talking about the politics. Right. Especially no, since yeah. True. I'm a. Um, avid devoted listener to his his podcast no as am i i think i'll, I'll just say yeah, that for common you gotta ground. be right yeah no i i know some people would snicker at this but i'm pretty much I don't, i'm not saying that i like live the bap lifestyle fully but like if there's like he's pretty much the person that i listen to the most yeah, dude. you know what i mean right, exactly um, yeah it's yeah, exactly it's, that's the package i'd recommend to anyone but go on so here's the thing um all of that was to say that when i listen to BAP it was like okay so the first thing is that like I, I became aware of who he was for a while and I thought he was just a joker and a troll basically and I actually I thought it was a good troll and I thought it was funny I didn't realize how much was behind everything he was doing like and that was for like years he didn't have that big of a following on Twitter I didn't really pay attention to him and I didn't think there was much more behind like trolling fatties and, and, and ugly people and stuff <laughs> like that right <coughs> excuse me I go to YouTube and I just type his name in to see like, what's, what's up with this guy? What's the deal? And the first thing I see literally was his Mishima younger and Celine episode. Did you guys see his episode 14? I believe. Oh yeah. I don't know if you remember that. Yes. Right. Yeah. I've and like, dude, okay. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was like 2020 at this point, I'm like 40 years old. I had never met another human being who had ever read Celine. I had never talked to anyone who had ever read Celine, even online. Uh, I, and Mishima, I had, I had talked to a couple people here and there because he, PewDiePie had, had, right. Him. As, as yeah. and BAP, BAP is, was in that episode. I remember BAP made a big deal of that. And it was maybe a big deal that PewDiePie, uh, and it may know. have been because of BAP, you know, some people think that it might've been because of BAP that he promoted him. That'd be, yeah, true. <laughs> no, but, uh, yeah, uh, basically I, and I oh, can't yeah. say for sure, but, uh, you know, big, big, if true is what I'd say to that. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so there's a, a theory that, uh, that, uh, PewDiePie, <coughs> excuse me, wouldn't say BAP's name because of, he was afraid of like, he had already gotten in trouble, I think for saying hard R and maybe some other things. Yeah. And, and, stuff, yeah. and the rumors were amongst our friends anyway, that, that, that he didn't want to like stir the controversy up again. So he just went with Mishima. Uh, I, I can't confirm whether or not that's true. 
but I like to think that it is true. Yeah, but anyways, it's, yeah, it's not like a neutral writer to say that you like. You know what I mean? It, it, PewDiePie definitely meant something by that. Um, For sure, he yeah. it was a whistle. It was a, a yeah. whistle, as the leftists like to say, it was a dog whistle. But, <laughs> the, but the point is though his name had been coming up more because of that by the time I found this episode of BAP and, and I at Caribbean Rhythms. And I was like, well, who the fuck is this guy, right? So yeah. I listened and it was like I had found the voice in my head that had been there for probably a dozen years that um, that was far more articulate and, and well-read than, than my voice, but had the same take only more so that I had on the world, but so much of it, I, I, I can't find a better word than just say suppressed. Like I suppressed it and there, and I, I, you know, I'm not ever going to try to claim to, uh, to know him, to know BAP or to really have any line of communication with him. But when I read his book, so I, I, I listened to the podcast, I read the book. Uh, and I, you know, I had been going through some shit in my life and reading the book helped me sort it out. And, you know, I had I had randomly like contacted people online here and there. And the most I'd ever gotten in my life was like, a, oh, thanks for reading, uh, so, you know, signed so and so. Uh, and so I didn't expect anything back from him. This was back when he had his Bronze Age Mantis account. Yeah. Sure. Uh, so I sent him this long DM and I didn't know that he had this big following. I didn't know anything about his like scene. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> and I basically just explained to him like what I was going through in my life and like how he helped me sort it out and like overcome it. And I mentioned Mishima and he sent back like a thoughtful thank you. Yeah. And like said some shit about Mishima. And it was like, I was sold. You know what I mean? Like I was totally fucking sold hook, line and sinker. So yeah, I've, I've had, I had a similar experience with him where I, you know, DM'd him and it took, I didn't expect to ever get a reply. It actually took like six months and then just out of the blue, he'd gotten yeah. back to me and given me a thoughtful reply. And yeah, he's really a nice guy. <laughs> and, yeah. He's, you know, he's really, something he's unique. Yeah. He's unique. So, so um, now, so I won't, you know what I said, I, I'm not going to get all political and I won't because anybody listening who's familiar with BAP will understand the political side without me enunciating yeah. it. But Absolutely. I wanted to tell that because it felt like a personalized experience. You know what I mean? Totally. And I've actually, yeah. whatever, you know, I've had like, <laughs> I've talked about this before. People have made fun of me for it who don't like BAP. And I'm like, well, that's why like it's our thing and not yours. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I totally, that's why I, I think I even said earlier when I was saying that I'm also like a devoted listener to Caribbean rhythms. It's like, yeah, there's people are always willing to make, make fun of you for it. Uh, or like pretend like they want to say like all of there's this notion that like all of BAP's followers are like weird like beta orbiters or not that's the wrong word in this context but like like weird like there's this notion that they're all like followers who like larpers like, yeah Would you say I, larpers i guess larper i don't know what the perception is i don't think it's true though no it's that everyone it's yeah and they're like everyone you know BAP's not responsible for the activity of all his of his fans but i don't think it's I, i'm not like some and and that 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 doesn't even matters. I'm not, I don't want to sound defensive here because it's not even something that I have any worry about, nor should you. But like, uh, you know, it's it, I don't think I'm like some ill-defined guy who like needs some like um, you know figure of, of masculinity to like glom onto. I don't think that at all. I just really have learned a lot from his podcast and from his writing, and I think that he is low key 
not that I necessarily endorse everything to the T in every context, but like he's one of those guys like kind of right about everything, you know, like yeah, if you listen yeah. to his take, it's like, at least from his perspective, like, yeah, like this, this his, his views on things are very cohesive. Um, I think zero on our show pointed this out, like his ability to kind of the, the accounts that he boosts and the people that he praises, like he's never really been like wrong about anyone. Yeah, um, he's just very he's very smart is, is, is maybe the short of it. And uh, and his message is very holistic, sort of also with growing nationalists in a similar way where he's the stuff he's advocating. So here, put it this way, not to go too deep into my own story, but like, uh, you know, there's a lot of dissident right figures out there. Some of them, a lot of them are smart, but some of them, you know, advocate different things and advocate irl political activity that yeah can make chaos out of your life you know if you were a a spencer follower or even like a america first person like i don't like spending hours watching these live streams and stuff like i actually think that can be a very socially isolating thing it can make you do and say stuff that like can negatively affect you at work and all this and all obviously all of us are dealing with controversial stuff but BAP's message and people and the general kind of frog twitter vicinity that we're talking about and that we're sort of a part of um i have found that that stuff has improved my life you know the more i read of it the more of the lifestyle stuff that i kind of try and emphasize like there's a real care there about the kind of vitality and wellness of the audience that I think is what makes it really stand out. Yeah, I I can't, I have nothing to add to that. I agree a a thousand percent, but notice though, that like these people in, in these spheres, because bat, you could name many others, but, but bronze age pervert, Roig nationalist. The thing I love about these guys is that they are so literary. I mean, Mm -hmm. yeah. To reiterate that episode of Caribbean rhythms was about three uh, writers uh who write fiction yeah right national not very well-known writers either very uh esoteric writers so yeah you know he he definitely has a in-depth knowledge and then raw egg nationalist does man's world i haven't listened to the episode yet you guys just put it out like two days before we started recording but uh, (laughs) he does man's world and he was kind enough to, to publish me which i like still i'm still like Oh, he's probably just when I first came to Twitter and had like 30 followers, I, I hit it off with this one random guy. Well, he's not random, but I just I don't want to start like name dropping too much, but it's OK. Yeah, he put me in a group chat, this guy, like right away. And Raw Nationals was in there. And when he started uh, putting me in man's world, I was like, oh, well, he's just like, you know, taking me under his wing. He doesn't really think I'm a good writer like. But like every episode or excuse me, every issue, he's like, hey, I need a piece. Like maybe, you know, you were tweeting about this. Why don't you uh, write write me a piece for Man's World about that? And I'm always like, all right, you know, that's my big Twitter brother. Like, yeah, <laughs> take yeah. it like I'm his charity writer. But, you know, I don't know. Maybe maybe he he sees something in my writing that's uh, redeemable enough to put it in there. I, I don't like to think he wants to publish Drek. But no, uh, anyway, yeah. my point is these guys. uh literature and a literary revival is like centrally important to these guys. And actually uh, uh, let me talk about zero for a second mm-hmm. real quick, because um, I didn't mean to come on here and like do commercials for all these guys, but no, like, it's it, okay. Yeah. Again, yeah, we have a lot of mutual friends. I knew we'd be talking about them. <laughs> yeah. If it wasn't for them, I wouldn't be here. Um, yeah. So I, I had this, my experience discovering zero was like, I lived out 
a short story I came up with. Um, and I actually told him once, like in in a good way, that reading his work kind of negated some of the work I had been doing. Like, and I like deleted a couple stories because I'm like, it's kind of like what I was saying when I found your podcast. I was like, all right, somebody already got here first. Like, and he's doing it way better than I ever could have. But actually, a quick side note about that. What I ended up doing is starting the stories over again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're way better than they were the first time. So yeah. actually, yeah, that's, you know, that's that's the anxiety of influence. Right. But I had written this story, this dystopian story about a kid living in the future of this. Like and this was before I found Bat that I wrote this. It was just like when I was going through the process of like realizing that like something had gone horribly wrong in the world and I had like been ignoring it while it was going down. And like, you know what I mean? Mm hmm. So I wrote this story about this kid in the future in college, and he's like this optimistic young college student. And he uh, it's this like future dystopia of this like feminist matriarchal world <clears throat> where all you learn about, like it's like a socialist government where all your needs are taken care of and you don't need to work and you don't even need to go to college. But you go to college as like this indoctrination thing and they, they act and they deploy the education as if it's the same thing that it used to be where you go here to learn and like get a job. But when you get out, you really just, uh, you know, you go live your socialist existence where you get your, you wait in your bread lines and things like that. Anyway, the point is, is like this kid's having like feminist uh, and like gender, you know, uh, LGBTQ ideology pounded into him. And he finds this, like uh, this, like mysterious book in the library that you end up finding out that like this professor planted there for him and he helped him find it <clears throat> behind the scenes. And he brings it to the guy and says like, Hey, what is this? You know? And, and the guy's like, Oh, that's Ernest Hemingway. And do you uh, want to read, you want to read Charles Bukowski and uh, Jack Kerouac. And he shows him all this stuff. And in this future dystopia, like all those books had been like erased from history, but this one like old professor had like snuck it in and was like, it was this underground thing. Right. Mm -hmm. Of like, of like uh, men like keeping the flame going of this like male literary culture. Yeah. And yeah. and when I found Zero's story, I read both uh, what a God shaped hole and um, I can't believe you kind of me. Yeah, thank you. I can't believe I just blanked on that. And I read them like back to back. And I was like, I'm the fucking guy from my story. And <laughs> Zero's work is like the shadow cannon that I that I invented. Yeah. Um, because I was like, it had already been out for like years when I found it. And I'm like, something has been going on. You know, I thought BAP at the time, at that time, back then was an anomaly. And I, and I just thought like, he was just like this one man show. And there, there wasn't this wider culture around him. I didn't realize that yet. Yeah. But once I read Zero's work and I also contacted him and I was like, holy shit, this is amazing. I realized that like something was going on underground and that the internet was being used as this like new tool to create this thriving new underground culture, just like the literary culture that I admired from the sixties and seventies and even the forties and fifties, which was underground. Then um, it was being recreated. And that by the way, is when I was like, holy fucking shit, Moldbug predicted all of this. Like, yeah. And so I just like kept having these like aha moments like over totally. and over and over again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's like why, you know, I started writing again. Well, I had already I had already been writing, but I started writing 
I started writing more seriously, I guess, like, which is crazy yeah. to say that because I went back to school for a second bachelor's and I have three kids now and I bought my ha- a house and I decided to like become a writer again, which is like fraught with, you know, obstacles. <laughs> but, course, but, 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 yeah. you know, we, we talked about it's fulfilling in its own right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, and crucially, know, we, I, we have a scene. We have, you know, I don't know if your audience, totally. yeah. from our, my audience certainly isn't huge, but at least it, no, it's the not huge, put out. Me. The work can be put out and talked about even by, you know, even if not a lot of people are doing so it, it's, the, you know, it's part of a network of ideas. That's one thing. That's what I think has kind of been taken from us as, as right. men of a certain stripe who are interested in liter- literary matters is the ability to do that. I mean, it's not just that like, oh, I, you know, with, with the mainstream publishing world and the mainstream literary world, it's not like, oh, I have to like take a back seat. It's like literally there is not a place to put my work. There's not a place that will publish it. Whereas our scene, you know, it can be plugged right in to a network of, of like-minded people. And I think that's what's, what's so yeah. cool about it. Yeah. I mean, whereas crucially, you can't find readers outside of our scene. In the mainstream audience, like, yes, you won't be published. But in addition to that, who would read it? Like the, the average New Yorker reader is like a... 35 year old liberal woman she doesn't want to read our shit and like and the problem is like most normie men don't read anymore they're like oh this is gay i don't want to read this shit and so they just stop reading so like men's literature is dying on the vine and that's why our scene is so important because you know it's um we we literally have to go underground to write (laughs) right and for and for as esoteric as a lot of it is and kind of for a niche audience something like man's world i mean it has some of the esotericist stuff for sure but like man's world uh is very appealing i think if a normie picked that up they'd be like oh yeah fucking cool and the literature in here is cool and the pictures in here are cool you know what i mean so like uh, not you have like a kind of inner party thing where it's like more you know not like bronze age permanent said you know bronze age mindset is not for everyone but like man's world is a you know dell yeah. is kind of like that but also has like a much more popular aesthetic to it so i think we're kind of even moving out of that inner circle and, and we're starting to uh take over the world hopefully yeah i like that a lot about because bat, bat i it took me you know dozens of episodes to really I, I was right there with him from 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 the jump but it took me like a while to realize like how sophisticated he is and i think a lot of people have this experience with him like he, he he's so engaging that it ta- like after a while it dawns on you like wow actually what he's doing is like really sophisticated and, and really a, a high level of intelligence um and the guy has a lot of for forethought Oh yeah. I mean, he's, he's ridiculously well-educated, you know what I mean? I mean, I, I, this is a bit of a tangent, but I don't know if you've read much Camille Polya. Yeah. 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 Like Camille Polya is not as based as that, but like, that's the, that's the comparison I make. It's like someone who has like this crazy electric intelligence, which is like the marriage of like a, 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 a razor sharp perspective, but also like a wealth of cultural knowledge and anthropological knowledge and and the whole package of it is just like uh you know bombs go off in your mind every every minute there's there's very sure. few people like that um well, crucially there. also the style and ability to execute it and deliver yeah. it in an yeah. engaging manner and yeah. like that he he exceeds par excellence there i wanted to say uh, one time i was going to tweet 
I try not to be too meta on my Twitter though about having a podcast, but so I didn't tweet it, but I wanted to tweet like, uh, you know, have a podcast and not compare yourself to Bronze Age Pervert Challenge Impossible. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Every time I start thinking about how I could never be like him, I'm like, all right, stop thinking that. Don't think that. Oh, like, yeah. That's not what you're trying to do. You're not trying to be like him. Like, Well, he's too singular to even try that with. So, yeah, for sure. Yeah. He's like, I wouldn't I wouldn't even try. You know what I mean? Um, but yeah, no. Yeah. I, yeah. But but what I want to say, though, is that he he's purposely setting up a high barrier to entry. He's a very good doorman to like if you don't get what he's doing and if you're not on the same page with him like you're not going to stick with it you're not going to you're not going to like go fully down the rabbit hole with him because you're not going to be able to like put up with how hard he goes on everything all the time but if you're with him you're going to love it and you're going to want more of it you're going to want him to go even harder whereas i don't think that that's what everyone uh, yeah, right. I can go longer and harder than you, my tan friend. <laughs> Couldn't help but get out. Oh, man. My my old account. You guys didn't know me on my old account. probably. No. Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah. I like had no prospect of ever putting my voice out there and I didn't have a podcast and I didn't really have a blog. So I just fucking said anything and posted anything. And I, I, I made this edit of her, uh, Claire Lehman. That was just fucking scandalous. <laughs> <laughs> I still have it. Maybe I'll post it. Maybe I'll post it. Yeah. If people, if people want to request it, um, <laughs> this is go, this is deep internet lore now though, uh, to even reference Claire Lehman in regards to BAP. But, oh no, uh, I, I remember that tweet exchange. That course. was fucking brilliant. Yeah. yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. Uh, you should see my. Uh, you should. See. I made a video, but, but uh, what was I gonna say? Oh, so man's world. I'm sorry. sorry. Man's world, and what I'm trying to do, and I think what you guys are trying to do, doesn't have the high barrier to entry. We're pretty normie friendly. From what I haven't heard yes. every episode of your guys, but I don't foresee finding episodes that are like going to get you guys pulled from the internet which no. i think is great no. i don't i don't aspire to that at all and man's world man's world is like very marketable yeah to a wide oh, audience yeah. and i really hope he blows the fuck up i mean he kind of already is right he did the tucker thing right yeah yeah exactly. completely yeah and, and you know the and and, and info wars uh, yeah, no, we, that, I think that's a good, that's a good point. Like, I don't, I think, you know, this gets into some of the stuff that you hear people in our sphere talking about, like the non versus not a non versus some nuanced in between thing question. And like, I think it's really important that there are accounts out there that are totally a non like BAP, like zero. Uh, and, and they, you know, they, they, they really got kind of go for the jugular in terms of what they're talking about. But then there's also, I think a place for uh, sort of, I mean, it's always smart to be at least a little bit anon, but like, you know, a little bit less uh, yeah. explicitly op, you know, opsec, all opsec all the time, you know, like in terms of voice toxing, um, like us and, and a little more normie friendly. Cause I think, yeah. And someone like Yarvin who used to be anon and is now a public figure. It's like, you know, there, there should be, there should be like, um, you know, people who are really singular and 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 really kind of unfiltered what they say but i think it's also important for there to be uh you know more more normie friendly stuff yeah and i i think over time i'm i'm actively trying to go more normie friendly over time because you could just get sucked into the vortex of like vitriol and 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 backbiting and and backstabbing and i i you know i don't want to come here and talk politics and uh but i do want to say 
I don't know how exactly how long you guys have been. Uh, I'd like to hear actually. I'd like to hear your your take on this too. But but like the 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 infighting has really like distressed me. And people, some people watch me have like fucking full blown meltdowns on the timeline because of people fighting against each other. But I realize like there's no big catalyzing thing going on right now to put everybody on the same side. So they these are this is a group of people who wouldn't really be associated with each other it, unless there's like a Gamergate, unless there's a Trump or unless there's like a COVID lockdowns to oppose. Uh, but on like the day to day, like I don't think this like the right wing sphere broadly are groups of people that would associate with each other because they seem to have very disparate uh, opinions on different things and different priorities, too, which is fine. I don't really like have an issue with someone who thinks differently than me there's very few you know ideologies or thoughts on the on the right conservative side that i have a problem with as a philosophy it's it's the people and the way they act that i dislike and i just think that they're just bored and they're just uh, yeah going after each other because they don't have anything better to like focus on at the moment which is why guys like us need to focus on art and literature and culture. Absolutely. And I think I'm trying to like make that exclusive, you know, and I think there's just a lot of jockeying for status going on. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah and sure. like, you know, that is something that people inevitably will do. But I think what you recommend here is the way out of it. You just, you focus on what your project is Yeah. and you don't focus on like, how do people respond to it who who is like you know uh better than you or worse than you you just you do your work and see how people respond yeah, to it and you keep it keep it affirmative you keep it focused on something like literature and art or in the case of bab it's both that but also or rag rag nationalist it's that it's fitness and it's nutrition you keep focused on the positive things the stuff that really matters um you know issues of vitalism and issues of promoting that and then the smaller stuff, like, you know, uh, like I remember like Amanda Milius brought this up on your show, Astral, about like gay marriage and stuff. Like, no, I don't want to be in involved in like the nuances of like what, what, what homosexuality related policy should or shouldn't be, you know, acceptable. Like, I, I really don't care about that. What I care about is art and I care about vitalism. And I think that the accounts that I like care about art and care about vitalism. I'm yeah, obviously, you- yeah, go on, sorry. No, I'm sorry. No, I just want to say I'm glad you brought up the Millie's episode because that's the episode in which I say I don't like politics. I'm subjected to politics and like yeah. I feel like yeah. I, I have to engage with them. And that's why I said like that I was like a disengaged normie for a while, because like by the time Occupy was over, I was like, I'm fucking done caring about all this shit. These people are all terrible, sucky people who can't get anything done. And it's not my it's not my thing. You know, it's not my interest. Yeah. And we have them on the right, too. I, here's where I'll get into infighting although i'm not going to name any names because i don't even care yeah, enough yeah. about it but like exactly the, the let's just say the non-frog twitter corner of the dissident right you know whether it's the spencer people or even some of the america first stuff it's like it's just not fun and a lot of it's just like sucky sort of doomed to fail irl activism and i don't know i'm not i'm not gonna like totally dismiss all those people some of them have done done good work yada yada but like you know, it's just not, I'm not interested in that explicitly political scene, nor do I think it's especially productive uh, at this particular moment. I think maybe, in, you know, sometimes there's a time for organization 
and activism, but it's very much not now, which is another thing that people like BAP, you know, usually harp on. Yeah. Um, and and then you, you made a good comment earlier about uh, how like certain guys will tell you how to live your life or tell you things to do in real life that will get you in trouble and sow chaos for your life. Where, as yeah. opposed to people like raw egg and BAP are only telling you to do things that end up, you know, making your life better. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you know, people cringe at like the manosphere thing. And a lot of manosphere stuff was cringe, but that, but man, you know, you know what I mean? Like manosphere and so the pickup artists have like that, that funneled a little bit, you know, they all are, you know, reverent toward like artiste and stuff. And I think that that there has been a kind of positive osmosis of some of that, like more base self-help culture and that self-help, no one likes that, but like, you know what I mean? There's actually like coming from a place of like, the, you know, the red pill is always supposed to partially be about, um, you know, improving your lot in life and achieving your goals. Uh, the fact even, even, you know, BAP is very political and he's not about self-help, but at the same time, he's never lost that, or, you know, th- that he's in touch with that original thing of like, you have to do stuff that yeah. you know is gonna work um you know bat doesn't talk about money a lot but like even you know even stuff like that there's always this advice like you need to be you know self-sufficient and be able to survive you shouldn't right. you can't just be a bleeding heart uh activist for like these doomed to fail political goals um frog twitter is much more in touch with that yeah and the other thing too is like focusing on culture i mean you guys tell me if you've had similar experiences to this, but like the only thing that's ever made me go out and change my life in like really dramatic ways has been literature. You yeah, know, I've one book I've read made me go uh, do this like Kerouac made me get out of my I actually wrote an essay on this on my old blog, which is now defunct and maybe I'll uh, revive it. But like Kerouac, right, gets this like reputation and it's true, but but unfortunately, this reputation makes some people denounce him or maybe I, I fear pre- pre- prevents people from reading him uh, for being a degenerate uh, because, he, you know, he did have a, at least one homosexual encounter. <laughs> with, 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 right. Which with um, was it with Norman uh, Mailer or was with probably Ginsburg? No, say. no, no, no. It was um, the guy who Gore Vidal. Oh. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, and um, <laughs> I, I I think there's you know others, but uh, but oh, he and was, he was he was a marijuana smoker, whatever. Like I don't. Well, he I, was a severe yeah. alcoholic. Yeah, uh, he was a speed addict. Um, and I, I mentioned the homosexuality, but he considered himself straight. He he, but he you know he had like failed marriages, and he was an illegitimate father, and uh, so he did not live a life that was admirable, and he did not make good choices at all, right? And I kind of renounced him like later, you know, when I got married and stuff, because he, he had a big influence on me when I was younger. Mm-hmm. When I got married, had a kid, you know, and I've always been like a one woman guy, like and I was faithful to my wife forever. And we were together for a long time. Fortunately, it didn't work out and I'm remarried now. But the point is, though, is I realized like, you know, that's not me. That's that's not those aren't my values. Like, I, I just thought it was cool. Like, it was just like a phase, you know, mm-hmm. and I renounced it all. Years go by, and I actually found Semmelweis, who sadly just got banned. Do you know him? From oh Twitter? yeah, I don't yeah, know him personally. I know of him. Well, know that's what I meant. Yeah, that's what that's what yeah. I meant. That's what I meant. Did you see his uh, Kerouac book though? That I heard it familiar. I haven't read it, but yeah, the, the sort of right, uh, like I wouldn't even say yeah, familiar, like the our but, guys reappraisal of Kerouac. Yeah, very much here. For well, you. in his later life, he did become somewhat reactionary. I believe he, he did. certainly he was did. no fan of the hippies. 
No, and or the communists. Yeah. He was an anti-communist and he was a Catholic his whole life and he mm-hmm. identified as a Catholic his whole life. And, uh, you know, him and Jerry Garcia both kind of look at the hippies and were like, fuck, did I do that? Like, (laughs) (laughs) um, um, but so I read the Semmelweis thing and that that man, I I don't think that guy would ever voice docs. I I can't get in touch with him. But Semmelweis, if this ever comes across to you, like get in touch with me on Twitter and we'll do an episode on your book, Uh, because that book, right, he he kind of like reevaluates Kerouac and it made me reevaluate Kerouac for myself. And I, and I realized that like, I had it all wrong. Like I had it all wrong because, you know, now I'm in my forties. Right. And, you know, this is kind of tough to talk about. And this is kind of the stuff that I was going through that when I contacted BAP and told him his book, like helped me sort shit out. But like dudes that I fucking hung out with growing up are like dead now. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Like suicide overdose, uh, you know, the ones who have families and shit, like, they went through rehab and they've done prison time and like whatever. And it's, it's pretty fucking bleak. And like Gen X, like was, you know, the nihilistic thing was like legit. And I came from like a, a decent middle-class town, but it was just lower middle-class enough that, that I was around some fucked up shit growing up. Um, and you know, the guys who didn't get into dope got into, you know, were heavy drinkers um and, and and no one no one that i i uh, the the only real panic attack i ever had in my life one day was when i realized that like i was the only person out of my friend group who like made it into adulthood like well adjusted and normal without an addiction problem and didn't do any yeah. time in jail or anything like that mm. so i read this thing from Semmelweis reevaluating kerouac and i realized that like kerouac didn't drag me down he fucking freed me from it like he's the reason that i left my hometown like he's the reason that i didn't like wallow in the 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 addiction that like the kids from my hometown all got trapped in because i was dude i was like drinking a 12 pack on a wednesday drinking at seven o'clock in the morning when i was like 19 years old like hanging out with dudes who were like shooting up right in front of me And I remember um, talking to this one guy who I randomly like it was like such a crazy span of events that I even ended up talking to this dude who fucking shot up in front of me while we were having this conversation. (laughs) But we were talking about like the Grateful Dead and uh, Ken Kesey and uh, the Merry Pranksters and all that shit. Mm -hmm. And I had read. No, I hadn't read Kerouac yet. Um, And he was like, dude get the fuck out of this town. Like, what are you doing? Yeah. here? Like you need to leave. You need to at least go to college in another town because you're like too smart for these people. Not, and I'm not that sure. smart. I don't, I'm not trying to say that I'm smart, but like the dudes I was hanging out with, like had no aspirations in life. None of them had ever read a book. Like they couldn't even like talk, let alone like read. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I do and, know what you mean. And it's not to put those people down, but like, yeah, we, not, we talked to, uh, I, I'll let you get back to it because this is no, uh, no, amazing. Okay. Okay. Thank you for like being so personal on our podcast. I think it makes for really good content. But like we, we had um, Caleb Cadell on a few, like a handful of episodes back who wrote a novel about um, what he calls like the middle American, he calls his genre like middle American Gothic. I don't know if you heard that episode, but he, and I actually, you know, he, he has a, Dan, what was the book called again? I, I it's called that. The Neighbor. The Neighbor, uh, about and basically just about a kind of yes, uh, a Middle America 
Midwestern milieu uh, where kind of people just get stuck in addiction. And it's a, it's a very real thing. Um, and I can't say that my background is like fully immersed in that, but I, I, I know the type and I've been, I've kind of passed through those milieus and like, yeah, no, people get stuck in towns. They never read a book. It's not because they're stupid, but like, right. You get well, sucked also, into that. Crucially, yeah. this is all occurring in the context of globalization and, yeah. and all of that. And so like I have family in upstate New York and I used to, I, I live in New York city, but, um, for Christmas and what have you growing up, um, in the early nineties, late eighties, early nineties, two thousands, even we'd go uh, upstate and, um, it was, I, I loved being up there as idyllic. It's like, it's small town. I grew up in the city. It's like, it's much nicer. You know, it, it was much nicer, but as time went on in the, like the later two thousands, the decay just, you know, you could see it. It, um, you know, the jobs leaving and, um, you know, the, uh, uh, you know, attached effects to, you know, the loss of jobs, it produced, um, you know, social decay. And um, that's, you know, sadly, what's, um, what's happening across America. And yeah, I, I don't know if that was your experience growing up, but I mean, it seems like it would sync up with the timeline of, um, you know, when things started to go awry in those places yeah that's that came later that that was more um that was more like looking back like going back to my hometown and seeing like you know the gas station i used to work at uh th which was like a independently owned uh, auto mechanic shop that had you know a little tiny convenience store and sold mobile gas out of it um, yeah. And it was this like hometown guy who fixed cars and like he, you know, he worked on like the police cars of like the local cops and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, it got bought out by people from another country who closed the shop, who they closed the shop and like turned this little, you know, quaint sort of convenience store that had like homemade bacon, egg and cheeses into this like full on, you know, Sunoco or mobile or whatever convenience store, um, which is whatever. It's fine. But like. It, it's like it's just like of all the things that happen, you know, like the, the the local town diner is now like a Chinese restaurant and little things like that. Like you go back to your hometown and you're like, everything's like gone. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. every, yeah. like the people are still here, but like you don't know where they are. They're not congregating there anymore. Like the people going in and out of that gas station now don't all know each other like they did when I worked there. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Um, and the but, houses, you know, like houses that used to be well maintained, you know, a lot of them look like they're falling apart. Yeah. And that's when you, you don't have money. Well, you don't maintain your house. And when you like have addiction problems, you're not going to be good at doing that either. And I, I so, don't like, want it's, it's visible, the decay. I don't want to get too far off topic uh, of Kerouac, but and I don't want to dox my location either. But <laughs> I've always said that the Rust Belt goes pretty much like to Western Massachusetts. You know, I, I don't know if you've ever been to the town where Jack Kerouac grew up, Lowell, Massachusetts, and there's a couple other towns around there. I can't think of the names of them right now off the top of my head, but they're they're just fucking skeletons. You know, yeah. they're they're skeletons of towns and there's like literal 
I mean, I, I went and visited one of my friends who lives in one of the towns who, of course, got a job working at like this like outreach center, this tiny little town. I don't know if you guys know Western Mass at all. A little bit, out- actually. Tiny bit. Yeah. Tiny bit. Yeah. This is out by Lowell, but not cu- quite as far. Um, it's very rural, very small town. And of course, he's working at this like, you know, halfway house for like local kids who are like on the street. Uh, or have the addiction problems and stuff like that. And he like took me to like the spot, you know, like the hangout spot. And like he would like, you know, try to get kids into like skateboarding and shit like that. And uh, it was literally a fucking falling down abandoned factory. <laughs> like, yeah. I was like, I was like, wow. So yeah, yeah. I, I always say that like the Rust Belt goes way farther east than people understand. But yeah. Yeah. Th- my it, that shit hadn't really been happening yet when I was when I was having this experience like it was like right on the cusp of it and you know I'm as okay. I'm telling the story like I'm thinking back what actually happened when I met this guy who told me to get get out of town and stuff like that and like you know expand my horizons was uh I was like 17 because and I, and I remember that now because I didn't read Kerouac until like two years later Mm-hmm. And I read the Dharma bombs because I remember when he said that I was like, oh, yeah, whatever, you know, but I'm not one of those guys. You know what I mean? I'm not the type of person who does that. And then the next year after that, this friend of mine, the same guy I'm talking about in Western Mass moved to San Francisco. And he was like, come stay with me anytime. And he worked for Greyhound at the time. And he's like, I can get you a free ride on the bus. And I was like, no, no, no. You know, I, that's not my scene. And then when I was 19, I read the dharma bums and on the road and the whole point of all this was to say that it got me out of my hometown it got me around different types of people that i wouldn't have been around if it wasn't for having done this and like it got me to see like different ways of life and just like the physical you know layout of other places you know because i lived in one of those cookie cutter towns that was like you know as i explained before like a holdover from the 50s that was like turning into like a box store slash strip mall town so it was like this homogenous culture, you know, and I was hanging out in San Francisco and Berkeley and we went up north um, to San Jose and other places. And I got to see like the world a little bit. You know what I mean? So then I liked it so much. I went to college out there uh, for just for a year um, and came back and like, you know, and, and then I lived all around the East Coast after that. And, you know, I didn't fuck with drugs anymore. Like and I never really had like a problem. Like I never really got like deep into it, but I was like a regular you know, drinker and smoker of marijuana and mm-hmm. fucked with some dabbled in some other stuff, too, but like nothing too heavy. And, you know, by the time I was like 24, I like hadn't smoked weed in like years. You know what I mean? And I realized later that Kerouac did that for me. Like he broke me out of it. And yeah. then he he was like a martyr really like he was like a sin eater if you know what the, a sin eater is i can like, imagine yeah go yeah. explain that though yeah well um it's it's this like pagan it's this like pagan idea it's like kind of like equivalent to like a scapegoat yeah where, right they take on like the the sins of others and like they take the hit what, so yeah. you can like be free you know what i mean yeah it's a yeah. it's an it's a fascinating archetype because you have a little bit of that with like not to be blasphemous but even like with christ 
you know? Like yeah, that's exactly what he is. That, no, that's exactly yeah, yeah. what it is. Yeah, and then yeah, in yeah, Buddhism, yeah. this is probably significantly different because this is a slightly less negative image. Uh, but you have like the Bodhisattva, which I'm not, you know, I'm not a scholar of Buddhism, but, you know, that's kind of what, what a someone who who delays enlightenment in order to help people that are behind. I mean, it's a similar idea mm-hmm. there too, perhaps, where it's like this, yeah, oh, it's some version, you know, the, the uh, Bodhisattva is not quite as on point because that's not quite a martyr figure. But yeah, the, the, the notion of the martyr, um, I think I might be frozen. Damn it. Can you guys hear me? I hear you. No, I hear you. Okay, cool. Um, I'll edit that out. Uh, yeah, you have yeah you have the notion of the martyr, uh, a figure like Christ, and uh, and that sin eater, um, yeah. sort of archetype. Yeah, I think, I think that is a, a good way. That's that's kind of been my re understanding of Kerouac as well. I had somewhat of a similar trajectory, maybe a little bit less of a profound existential influence on me, but like, you know, really liked Kerouac as a teenager. Thought he was all that, um, and then later was like, oh, actually, this guy. Uh, you know, he's kind of just like a proto hippie, whatever. But then, like, you come back to like, no, he doesn't represent like an ideal for living. He's not a role model. He wasn't like he wasn't enlightened or anything like that per se. But he was profoundly troubled, actually. He was profoundly troubled, and he was profoundly troubled in a way that was reflective of the times in which he was living. And there's something to be learned in that, you know. Um, and I think that I don't, I haven't read the Semmelweis book, but. There's definitely like a right wing or or traditionalist sort of re reappreciation for Kerouac that can, that can occur. That like yes, on the one hand, he did hold slightly more conservative views toward the end of his life. That's part of it, but it even goes deeper. And that you know he's just a um, uh, you know a figure who who was reflective of his time. And you know there is a spiritual yearning that you get in Kerouac, a very frustrated spiritual yearning. And like yeah some new age types like him, but also like he was getting to the heart of, of some kind of, you know, alienation that was starting to happen even in the fifties. Yeah. One thing that I'm kind of perceiving coming into these spheres is like, um, there's been this sort of retconning of philosophical and literary figures and they've been taken up by the mainstream and, you know, I guess this is somewhat of a banal observation, generally speaking, because everyone kind of knows like once something becomes popular, it gets diluted and it gets it gets uh, it gets ruined. And people who aren't really don't really understand the spirit of a band or an author or 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 a philosopher, um, it's picking up steam and it's hip and it's cool. So they'll like they're like hangers on. And those people kind of ruin like the group of people. They kind of ruin the scene for the people who are in the know and the people who really like get it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that, that happens with like online spheres as well, too. Uh, but someone like Nietzsche and someone like Kerouac have been so thoroughly embraced by like just the most mediocre <sighs> sort of m- mainstream uh people that that really don't have anything to contribute to Kerouac's body of work all they can do is like suck it of its vitality and and Kerouac has been this sort of like this sort of like hallmarky like oh you know see the world discover yourself thing and it's like okay yeah that's what happened to me that's what I did but like uh it's 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 not pretty you know it wasn't pretty for me 
and it wasn't pretty for Kerouac. And like, it's not a fun thing. It's and 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 I think the university goes a long way in this like watering down Mm -hmm. because you have these people who like, you know, sure, I don't want to take anything away from from people who've lived, you know, really. You know, I'm going to I'm just going to say it. I no offense to anyone personally. Yeah. But but like to me, it's always been like if you've spent your 20s, you know, going to undergrad right into a master's or right into a Ph.D. and then right into a professorship uh, in academia. And I don't see how you've like lived a real life like I don't. Mm-hmm. My, yeah. I don't give you the credibility I give somebody else. And like, dude, when I pick up a book like from an author that I haven't read before or don't know much about, and the first thing I see is like studied at this creative writing workshop, yeah, went to this exactly. university and worked for this paper. I was, I would like put it down. I'm like, I don't, I am probably not going to like jive with what this guy says. You know what I mean? Um, so people like that, they can't, bring anything to this work all they can do is like tear it down like walter kaufman's like nietzsche like back when i was like you know like so many things occurred to me right when i was like on my own that i didn't have anybody else to like bounce it off of or, or anybody else to like reaffirm what i was saying that's why bap was so important to me because like i had all these observations about things that were wrong in the world that no one ever affirmed until I found that because yeah. no one yeah. fucking, you know what I mean? And one of those experiences I've had was like, I had read probably like five Nietzsche books. Yeah. I read like four, maybe three or four Nietzsche books on my own. And then when I discovered BAP, I like went back and read them again and read like two or three other Nietzsche books. Yeah. But the first time I was reading him, I think I was reading like the will to power and the gay science. And I had the Kaufman translation of both. Mm-hmm. And I would like read it and and like some of it's very straightforward, but some of it like I didn't know what he was talking about. So I'd go read the the footnotes and the footnotes like I didn't know anything about about I I had no idea what Nietzsche's relationship to academia was at the time. I had no idea what philosophers thought of him and I had no idea who Walter Kaufman was. But I'm reading the footnotes and I'm like, this is bullshit like this guy is totally trying to like twist what Nietzsche is saying and like find threads and connect things from different parts of his work to change the message like Ah. this is total bullshit and you know coming to this sphere like this is kind of like an accepted reality in our spheres. Like, yeah, academics are bug men who don't know anything about real life. And they're going to take some vitalist author like Nietzsche and Kerouac, and they're going to water it down and they're going to say, it doesn't mean what it means Yes. in order to hammer it into some bullshit ideology and have it reinforced. And like, you know, I still, I still don't get the motivation. Like I still don't get the motivation for like, Bap says in Caribbean Rhythms that like they had no choice but to try to retcon Nietzsche because like so many important people had read him and so many important people reference him, especially Michel Foucault, who's like the most important leftist philosopher thinker there is. He is like he is like a footnote to Nietzsche. He is like, yeah, and he's open about it. So like 
it's right there in broad daylight. So it's almost like they had to try to retcon him so that like if their yeah. students went back and read him, they're not going to be red pilled. They're going to be like, oh, no, 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 no. He doesn't yeah. really. Oh, mean... co- completely. It's, yeah. I think it's, it's hard it. to cancel Nietzsche because he's just he's everywhere. Yeah. Like there's this other philosophers who are more esoteric who you could be like, uh, yeah, no, you can't read that guy. But like Nietzsche, like like you say, it's he's an influence on their guys. Mm-hmm. So. Heidegger as well, to, to a large extent. Yeah, and he's Nietzsche a darling a of academia. Yeah, he, oh Heidegger yeah, is absolutely. Der- Derrida, and, you know, uh, all, all the uh, lefty uh, post-structuralist, post, you know, post-critical theory thinkers, they all passed through Nietzsche and Heidegger. And I don't know if this was a conscious process of, of retconning for the reason you said, but I think on an unconscious level, that's what it is. I mean, these thinkers represent... Um, some of the most cutting edge and vital currents in, you know, in Western philosophy. And there's a need to uh, pass through them and sort of desaturate them of their power and turn them into something that is either kind of, you know, weird, weirdly leftist or, or like even just kind of just passive and, and, and um, well, to defang them, basically, to defang them. Yeah. basically. Yeah. you make yeah. Nietzsche, um, you know, uh, impotent. Definitely. And it's, Absolutely. Yeah, it's interesting you bring up the Walter Kaufman translations. I mean, those are the ones I've read as well. I, they may still be the prevailing translations. I'm not sure if there's anything wrong with the translations. No, yeah, the, no, no, no. Yeah, not at all. With the, the interpretations thereof. And, you know, Nietzsche is a good enough writer that it all shines through anyway. But like, yeah, you, I, you, I think about this sometimes. I, um, you know, I, as I said earlier, I was an English major. I was a philosophy major as well. I, I kind of considered a career in academia, which I'm glad I, I didn't do even that probably would have given me some, you know, direction in my career that I may or may not currently have, because it would have been like, you know, some kind of vocation. But at the same time, it's like, as you said, I don't think it's it's not a fruitful world to be a part of. Um, and so any, anyway, I still have to say, like, I, I, I had that some attraction to academia have, you know, a degree of an academic background, although I certainly have no master's degree or anything like that. But I often think about like, what would academics, some of whom I have a degree of respect for, even though I think what you said is largely correct about them being sort of disconnected from, from your life and being bug men in 90% of the cases. I do sometimes think like, what would an academic make of BAP? And what they'd say is like, oh, this is like someone who, you know, his stuff is not like peer reviewed. Right. And, and like, this is a misinterpretation, you know, just like the Nazis had a misinterpretation of Nietzsche, which I think in that case, it, their, their interpretation probably was incorrect. But in, but in the case of Baps, I, you know, who's to say that, like, who, who's to say exactly what Nietzsche thought? But I think Baps, I think Baps is a hell of a lot closer than yeah. any of the prevailing academic trends. And um, it's, uh, yeah, with someone like Nietzsche, who is a vitalist and who did really emphasize the sort of existential importance of like putting your money where your mouth is with philosophy and having it, you know, be part and parcel of your life, not just some masturbatory intellectual exercise. Who are you going to trust on Nietzsche? Are you going to trust the, you know, the autodidact, uh, you know, who, who, you know, who, who comes to this, you know, on, on his own sort of as he is like BAP and, and um, you know, uses it uh toward a message of vitalism we're gonna trust that person we're gonna trust the person who has all kinds of other considerations like getting tenure and like his career in academia like obviously whether or not bap is perfectly right as a conduit of nietzsche i mean i happen to think he is but yeah whether or not he is i think you know i I would leave that to the audience like who do you trust the person who sort of come comes to this uh you know 
in its own right or the person who has all kinds of weird academic hangups. Um, and I think there's definitely something to be said for, for our guys and for our sphere uh, with regard to this kind of, uh, you know, hermeneutics and interpretation. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just agreeing. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, I uh, did you guys read the um, essay on my blog called The Failed Ubermensch? Yes, uh, the yes. one about uh, yeah, with rest, Cal, crime, crime and, and punishment. punishment. Yeah. yeah, and you guys have read Crime and Punishment. It's yes. been a while, but yes, I have. <laughs> because I, I struggle with Zarathustra and whether or not. So the the thing that I struggle with the most with Nietzsche is Zarathustra. The other books I I think are very straightforward, but he he's trying to. It's it's really admirable what he's trying to accomplish, and I think he maybe pulls it off. He definitely almost pulls it off, if not completely pulls it off, in, in that he's attempting to set up a system and, and, and create an exemplar to, to, to this sounds so ridiculous to say this out loud, to replace the exemplar of, of Christ in the Bible. He's yeah. trying to evaluate values. And I believe that there's a, um, the, well, the values of the past 2000 years anyway. Right. And there's a book that he, I think, started writing. That's right. It, the uh, the revaluation of yeah. all values. Yeah, exactly. Like exactly. And I guess at the end of his life, when he was like, when he was losing it, I forget exactly what he was going around saying to people, but I think he was calling himself like the new Christ. He was calling the himself new- the new Christ. He was calling himself Dionysus. Yes, yeah. yes. So, so he really was trying to... create the gospel of the new man of the future and that if if we didn't um listen to him if we didn't heed his his call we were going to devolve into the last men and i've spent years you know bap will just say it like he'll just say it like nietzsche was right about everything you know but i like really struggle with it because it's like the implications of him being right are so fucking profound yes that that yeah that right exactly so zarathustra i the first time i read it i thought it was just larpy 15 year old kitsch like i was like <laughs> oh some some kid uh, of course this appeals to like high school kids who are like going to go be the ubermensch and they're going to go you know get the girl and maybe they got in like one fight in their life and like they did okay. And like now, like they're the Ubermensch and they're gonna, they're gonna like go, you know, start the family or start their career or whatever it was. And like I realize now that like that's what the academy is trying to turn Nietzsche into, you know, and like Carl Jung, who I have immense respect for, I, I don't ascribe to all of his writing, but he, he, I have immense respect for him. And he kind of enunciated the process of individuation, which I think he was mostly correct about. But the problem with Jung and uh, not Jung himself, but the, the his legacy and Joseph Campbell's legacy and the hero's journey is like Nietzsche, who inspired both of those guys. Both of them were reiterating reiterations of Nietzsche. Um, their their like hero's journey of self-discovery got turned into this like the secret thing and it like culminated in like eat pray love you know what i mean yeah and uh i think because of that cultural uh uh cultural uh 
impression of Nietzsche and Zarathustra, I couldn't take it seriously the first time I read it because I was like, nobody can do this. You can't be like this guy. So this has to be metaphorical. But the second time I read it, I took it deadly seriously. And I realized that what he's really saying in that book is that the only way to get ourselves out of the predicament we're in in modernity is to take extreme and drastic measures like Zarathustra does and and live your life uh, like Zarathustra does, which is going to have massive negative consequences for you if you try. Therefore, not many people can embody Zarathustra and and it's going to be a long time before somebody finally does. And, uh, you know, I wrote a piece on Mishima, which I, I sometimes worry. I like I like over romanticize his suicide. Uh, but you, we have to remember that suicide in Japanese culture is, a, is totally different than it is in American culture. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's like a way of retaining your honor. And I realized that like Spengler Spengler is also a grand elaboration on Nietzsche in many, many ways. Um, it's he, you can't reduce Spengler to, to that. You can reduce some of these other guys to that. But Spengler, there's a lot more going on. But he has that uh, grand, wonderful metaphor of the of the soldier at Pompeii, the legionary at Pompeii who refused to leave his duty because he hadn't been or he's, he refused to leave his guard because he had failed to be uh, relieved and um, he didn't get the order to stand down. So he stood there while, you know, Mount Vesuvius washed over him. Mm. And Spengler kind of says, that's it. That's, that's the only option the West has is to, to, to hold the lost position without hope. Uh, that's what it means to be a thoroughbred. So if you think about that in context of the last man, right? <clears throat> Nietzsche was uh surrounded by last men and he says someday a Zarathustra is going to come and be an example to these last men and most of them are going to just blink and ignore him and they're going to laugh at him but someone somewhere is going to like take the plunge and try and that person is the tightrope walker the tightrope walker is going to fall right. to his mm -hmm. death and it's going to be and Nietzsche even said I, I don't remember if it's in the book or if he just said it elsewhere that like none of this stuff is going to even come to pass in his lifetime. And I don't think it's come to pass even now. No. Yeah. Um, so when I, when I look at Mishima's suicide, I realized that like Mishima existed after the legionary had already succumbed to the onslaught of Vesuvius while holding the lost position. Someone like Mishima didn't have a lost position to hold anymore. And us in America now, like there is no lost position to hold. Like the lost position is already lost. Yeah. Okay. True. <clears throat> Hang on a second. So the way I see people like Mishima is like the only thing we can do before the Ubermensch truly arrives is to make, make, um, to make moves as if we were striving for that mm -hmm. and 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 we it's kind of like uh it's like a, it's like a lifeline we're like laying out a lifeline to show people like there is another way something was lost that we cannot live without and if if we can't get that back uh some of us are going to have to go under 
and and going under, you know, means many different things. It means succumbing to alcoholism like Kerouac did. It means uh, outright suicide like like Mishima. All right. So what it is that uh, Nietzsche and Mishima are trying to elicit and they're trying to bring about and manifest in the world, right, is a revival of an earlier, more noble, more more uh, vitalistic time. Yeah. When yeah. when men were men and they were able to to exert their will and and you know if if we're staying with the theme here own space Mm -hmm. yeah so for nietzsche it was the blonde beast it was the it was the germanics and the the anglo-saxons of the past uh well for the europeans i should say the vikings the the germanic uh warlords uh of the past the people uh who who defeated the romans uh in the in the um in the uh, Teutoburg forest, the uh, Germans uh, who took over the Roman empire for Mishima, obviously it was the samurai and Bushido, but for Americans, it's the cowboy and it's the frontiersman. Yeah. Okay. Good point. Yeah. Yeah. And that is what we're trying to revive. That is like when we were in, in our most manly and robust phase of, of our civilization and this is like the civilization like of develop when it's developing when the institutions are being built this is all this very nietzschean concepts where he's talking about like we're given liberties in liberal institutions within the framework of liberal institutions which are actually like a degradation of what true freedom is you know what I mean? Yeah. The truly free men are the men who existed before the institution exists, who exerted their will that was able to bring about and give rise to these institutions, mm-hmm. which is exactly what the frontiersmen did and what the cowboys did and what the Texas Rangers did and men like that. And even the even the um, not the pilgrims. Well, the pilgrims, too. But I, I mean, more like the pilgrims who went out west, like for the gold rush and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> frontiersmen for sure yeah settlers Settlers. the settlers and cormac mccarthy is is a is a is a nietzschean if he's anything Mm -hmm. and and blood meridian you know i tried in my essay on blood meridian called forcing the unity of existence i tried to lay this out i i i need i feel like i need to expand on that essay but what i was trying to say in that essay right is that like if we trace the whole entire story of the frontier, the opening of the frontier to the closing of the frontier, we see like the, this type of man uh, uh, in his like fullest glory, you know, um, able to yes. be totally free and, and unrestrained by anything, by, by women, by religion, by, by the law, by liberal institutions in any way. And he was beholden only to himself. Uh, and, by the time um, the, the frontier closed, that type of man was no longer welcome. That type of man yes. was no longer able to function within society. And society was no longer able to function with that type of man within it. And that type of man became what Nietzsche called the subterranean. And they're, they're the criminals. And this, this goes back to Kerouac. He has a book oh, yeah. called The Subterranean. He does. Yes. Um, so, so I believe... My take on Blood Meridian, right, is that like the kid is born 15 years before the, the West opens and the West con- is considered to open when gold was discovered in California. And that's when people started going going there to try to like prospect for gold. 
And it caused this big rush for people to go there to like build cities and towns and trade up around the gold prospectors, which also kind of subdued the frontier for uh, cattle ranching and, and building trains across the, the, the plains and things like that. But of course, it's it's incredibly dangerous because not just because of the climate and you're completely exposed to the elements as you're going and doing these things. But uh, there's extremely hostile Indians there who were, in fact, the greatest war machine of that time. Uh, they had beaten the Mexicans and the Spanish before them, the Comanche in particular, yes. the Apache as well and others. But the Comanche are considered one of the. Uh, deadliest warriors to ever roam, you know, the American West. Um, certainly, they certainly dominated all of the other Native American tribes, but they even dominated, you know, Western uh, people with guns and revolvers and rifles. Yeah. Uh, and 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 if you've ever read the book um, Empire of the Suburb Moon, it kind of explains right. the familiar. Fighting... Yeah. 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 It explains the fighting tactics and how our men had to, well, our men had to adapt to how the Comanche fought in order to beat them. But really, I don't even know, you know, how much more it would have lasted if we didn't evolve uh, 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 rifle technology because the repeater rifle came out, which allowed us to fire off more shots than they could arrows. So they were probably doomed when that happened, but they also got hit with the plague and, yeah. and the black death. And that, that literally decimated half of their numbers. But up until that happened, like we were kind of no match for them. Like nobody was really a match for them. And this is the environment that these men were going into. And this is what uh, the whole raison d'etre for the for the for the, uh, the not the prospectors, but the um, the filibusterers and the uh, the irregulars. Glanton's gang is to deal with the Comanche mm -hmm. because the Mexican army just lost the Mexican-American war and they couldn't beat them. They couldn't defeat them. So. In order for America to move into this hostile territory, we needed Zarathustra-like figures who were not going to hesitate to mm. do what needed to be done, who were not going to suppress their instincts, uh, and who were not going to uh, kowtow to, to um, polite society's uh, expectations. In fact, a man who did so would not last even, he wouldn't even make it out of town, as the book shows. The book starts out with them committing violence against each other in town. And I think. Yeah, they like beat the shit out of a bartender and then they light a hotel on fire. And they, yeah, they, fuck <laughs> yeah. They, fuck they try to kill each other. Um, and one of these things, I forgot exactly which one, the kid gets a reputation for this. And Colonel White's uh, filibusterers seek him out and say, hey, we need a guy like you. Right. We need a ruthless yeah. fucking cold blooded killer to be on our team. Now, have you guys seen uh, the movie Dead Man with Johnny Depp or the movie uh, Unforgiven with uh, Unforgiven for sure. Love that one. Um, so, I may not have, but go on. Yeah. <laughs> Unforgiven is is not without some minor flaws. Still one of the best movies of all time. And Dead Man is under fucking rated as well. I'll have to look up Dead Man. I, oh, I actually dude, haven't heard of it. It's amazing. Admit. It's yeah, amazing. Johnny, Johnny Depp in the headlines, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah exactly and uh it's a black and white jim jarmusch movie have you ever seen any of his movies i have yeah he's he kind of does that mumblecore stuff right yeah but you got to go to dead man mm -hmm. because his movies took a his movies took right. a decided turn 
uh, later in his career, and they're nowhere near as good. They're definitely like hipster fucking yeah. pandering, you know. you know, with Adam Driver, the emo guy. Yeah. Um, Dead Man, <laughs> Dead Man came out in like '95, and uh, the dude Jarmusch was a badass back then. And that okay. the, the studio tried to like uh, they 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 had all these different ideas. They wanted to edit it a certain way, and they wanted to advertise it a certain way that he didn't like. So he said, "Fuck you! No, you can't do any of that shit." So it got like no advertising. It got barely any release. Like it was like an underground movie almost. You know what I mean? Like. It's, Interesting. Uh, yeah, so it was hard to find, or not, it was hard to know about, really, because it got no no advertising at all. Uh, but the but the point you got to go see that if you're a fan of Blood Meridian, you got to watch both those movies because because it helps set up a contrast uh, and and enunciates some of the things I'm saying here that like the West closes and that type of man has to go away, and when the West opens those types of men were in their prime. That was, that was their time. And dead man depicts Johnny Depp as this, like, uh, I think he's like an accountant and he comes from Cincinnati. And I even mentioned in my essay, like a, a guy from Ohio with a desk job could never make it in these conditions. And I was referencing that movie because he's a guy with a desk job from Ohio. And um, you know, he, he gets like thrown out into the frontier and he has all these experiences and he, he does turn into a killer, but almost like by accident. And he has a native American kind of show him the way. And he, he ends up dying. I'm not giving anything away. The movie's called dead man because, <laughs> because he's, <laughs> he's uh, the whole movie's about him though. The whole movie's about him dying. So it's not a spoiler. Uh, the whole movie <laughs> is about him meeting his death on the frontier because he is not the type of person who's supposed to be there. He is not the type of man made for that type of life. Yeah. Whereas if you think about the way um, um, Unforgiven, right? Like when have you ever seen a Western like this movie? So that movie takes place in 1882 and the, the U S census Bureau declared the West closed the frontier closed in 1880. So that movie takes place after that era was over and after that type of man was gone the, the the cowboy and the frontiersman and in the film it shows a young guy who's coming up from the new generation and clint eastwood is the old man with the gunslinger reputation right and That's the right. new guy is like out for revenge and he wants to be a gunslinger too and he wants to be a renegade and he has to like kill some people he doesn't have the fucking stomach for it like he can't do it he yeah. shoots somebody in the stomach and the dude has this like miserable grisly painful pathetic death and uh clint eastwood shoots that guy and and clint eastwood is like over it he's like fuck you know put him out of his misery like shut him up give give him some water he's begging for water and he's like give him some water the the point is that clint eastwood is like over it he's he's gone beyond that phase and that era and like he doesn't have the stomach for it anymore and then the young guy shoots somebody and, and he can't handle it either. It's the same thing for him. He's he's just as distraught about it. And and at the end, um, the young guy like doesn't feel good about what they did. He doesn't feel like an outlaw. And Clint Eastwood just fucking disappears because he's like trying to put that all behind him. So my impersonation, impersonation, my interpretation of Blood Meridian, right, is that the judge represents death. And what is he the judge of? They say right in the book, like he's never presided over a court case. He's not actually a judge. Why do they call him a judge? I think that 
the judge is the arbiter of like when your time is up. Like he's not yes. judging. Yeah, right. Just like death determines when it's your time. And I'd like to expand on this somewhere, like in an essay or something. But but the mo- I I'm certain that Cormac McCarthy took inspiration from the movie uh, The Seventh Seal. Yeah, I read that the- in your thing. Yeah. Judge Holden. Oh, did I put in the essay? I don't remember. That. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Just kind of as an aside, but it made sense. To yeah. Me. Right. So the crusader and he even so he has this whole existential crisis. He's like, who am I? What is what am I for? What is my purpose? Like, what am I doing here? I'm like a ghost. I wish I could remember the actual soliloquy because it's brilliant. But he's like, I'm like a ghost wandering around these people who don't don't know me and, and, and can't see me. And there's they have no use for me. He's a man who has to go to the Holy Land to utilize those aspects of himself that the that the gunslinger has to to utilize and the and the and the samurai and the Viking and the blonde beast of Nietzsche. He has to uh, eschew politeness of society and use his killer instinct and overcome to survive. Then he comes back to polite society and they have no use for him anymore. And he's actually like a threat. So death is stalking him and death has to remove him. And all the people that he's surrounded by, right? Like all the, they're not other veterans and stuff. They're, they're like merchants and family people. They're normies. (laughs) They're normies. Right. Exactly. In the context. Yeah. And they have this procession at the end of the, of the seventh seal where uh, he's saying like this, this, the dance of death goes on forever, you know? And it's just like at the end of blood Meridian where they say he will never die. He, he will always be dancing. And he goes around and uh, I can't remember who else he kills. He kills other people from the Glanton gang, but he has to go years later and hunt the kid down because the West is closed now. And the time for that type of man is over. And the judge's job is to come and and take him out and remove him from society. He has to remove him from the dance floor. And he says when the warrior is removed, uh, the dance becomes a false dance. And this is what the epilogue is. The epilogue is the guy with the post hole digger digging the holes for the fencing to cordon off the West to put the fencing up and like create parameters and create boundaries to like turn it into uh, something to like extract wealth from and to direct the flows of cattle who are who are commodity. Whereas before the Buffalo freely roamed across the West and there, you know, a fence is to stop that, is to cut that off. Uh, and then, so, but he's the trailblazer, this guy. This is the guy with the vision who goes along. And then people behind him, right, uh, in, the, in the epilogue are, like, scuttling along behind him. They're the bug men. They're the men who are, like, not strong enough to do this. They're not strong enough to build the fence. They're not strong enough. The wild has been tamed yeah. and subdued. Um and this is, and I think that Nietzsche is probably like the most important person to inform you to understand Cormac McCarthy in in general, but but particularly this book. So, yeah, no, it's, it's it's quite an it's quite an interpretation. And uh, you know, I just I read Blood Meridian to back up a step. I read Blood Meridian for the first time last year, and you know, it, there's a there's a lot to it, and um, and I've kind of come around to to your way of of interpreting it. Uh, to back up a step. Um, that was when I first came across your work was our friend T.R. Hudson 
recommend we were talking about blood meridian there was going to be a notion that we were going to talk about the book on on the podcast we did with him on his novel automaton which was partially inspired i think by blood meridian and he mentioned your blog as containing a really excellent uh essay on blood meridian which was the one you you referenced the forced what is it the forced unity yeah seeing the oh you say it astral (laughs) it's okay man it's okay it's a quote from the judge forcing the unity of existence he says war he says war forces the unity of existence right which is it's nietzschean but it's also heraclitian yeah oh yeah am i saying that right is 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 that heraclitian you have to say the word clit every time you say it maybe (laughs) but yeah um yeah no uh tr tr uh is basically who who pointed me in your direction and uh, i was I, I read this essay. I was earlier this year, like within months of having finished Blood Meridian, and it was awesome. definitely a. I finally, not that the you know, not to overinterpret. There's always things should always be open for interpretation, but on some level, it's like I finally get it. Um, and I would I would point anyone to in your in the direction of uh, forcing forcing the unity uh, of existence uh, as a good essay to um, to explain uh, kind of what 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 the book is all about. Um, and just to not to be remiss, you also have another, you have two essays on Blood Meridian. The other one being, um, what was the other one called? Let me pull it up. Or is well, the father of us all. Yes, which, which is was as featured court. in Man's World 6, which is also um, a very good, very good essay. Where was I going with this? Um, basically, uh, yeah, like I, I recommend anyone should read Blood Meridian by Cormac McCarthy. And if you're if you're looking to kind of, get a more intellectual like sense of, of what it's about. Um, I, you know, I basically agree with your interpretation, Astral. I did have one question on the nuance of it. Um, and sorry if you're going to go on and make another point. Sorry for, I hope that's distracting no, 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 too no. much. Um, but you mentioned, it's kind of like the judge wants to kill the kid or feels this need to kill the kid, the protagonist of the novel, uh, because his time has passed. The West is closed. Uh, it is no longer the time and place for men like him. However, there's also an important, and you talk maybe a little more about this in um, War as the Father of All, um, that there's this element where the judge deems the kid to not be worthy of, of the open West and not to be worthy of this role as one of the barbarians because he shows mercy at a certain point, which is also something you get in in one of in Cormac McCarthy's other well-known novel, No Country for Old Men, with the character of Chigurh, uh, who you know people know him as played by Javier Bardem in the film adaptation. But he also there's kind of a notion that he 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 goes after his target after he shows mercy, gives water uh, to a man in the desert. Um, so I guess I'm I'm curious, like in your view, and I think it you know holds up to the text. But how how do you kind of square that? Uh, you know, there's there's almost this double thing going on where it's like the kid is both not enough of a barbarian, but then also too much of a barbarian. What once the once the West is closed, is it just kind of that? Not to overinterpret, is it just kind of a double reason? Or, or what? No, that's a great a great question. That is the quintessential question because it's for me anyway. So it's I'm glad you picked up on that. Um, I because these went into man's world. I and 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 uh, the the um. The Nietzsche one too, the failed Ubermensch. Mm, All of these right. were written for publications. The the failed Ubermensch actually, there's a funny story behind that that I won't get into at the moment. Ended up not going into the magazine it was going to go into. But the point is, is I cut them all short. Like the the they were all like twice as long, and I had to take a bunch out. 
And part of the reason why the war is the father of us all essay even exists is because I, I couldn't really explain what I was saying at the end of Force of the Union of Existence, where I say that the judge tells the kid he's killing him uh, for a paradoxical reason, which I mean by which I mean, like he's killing them for the exact opposite reason that he says. And then I just leave it at that. And you absolutely need to have that backed up. Like it needs to be expounded upon. Hence the second essay, because he's I say that he killed him to to take him out of the dance floor, to remove the warrior from the liberal institutions, from the developing society, because uh, it's not his time anymore. But he says it's because he wasn't cut out for being the frontiersman. He says uh, he wasn't uh, he didn't have what it takes now. This is highly speculative. I feel like many of the other claims I make are solidly backed up by the book. Um, and I feel like I might be stretching or reaching a little bit with this. But what I've the conclusion I've come to is that the kid is a man or a character in transition. While someone like Toad, because remember, he was 15 when he got into this. Yeah. So he wasn't a fully developed adult yet. Um, and there is a motif. There is precedence in other works for this uh, character in transition who was born in a different time, but he's of the later time. He's of another time. Um, yeah. The kid was 15 when the book starts and every other person around him was a, a grown man. Toadvine the colonel, they were veterans. Most of these guys were veterans. A few of them were just uh, longtime career criminals, but they were all grown men. And they were like, they had like been living this life for the amount of time the kid was alive. So by the time the West is closed, the kid, I think uh, you can do the math. I think he's like 35, 45, something like that. The judge is saying to him, like, you never really were one of us the whole time. You know what I mean? Yeah you didn't really have what it takes. Like, I don't even know. And um, this is my words now. Like, I don't even know how you made it this far. Like you weren't supposed to make it this far. So it's my job to take you out. And if that's the case, right, right. That he's not cut out for it and he's not one of us and he didn't really have what it takes. If that's the case, what that means to me is that he is on the cusp of two worlds. He was born old, like, of an age to be like this, this new man, this new last man or this new bug man. But, but he got thrown in to this other world and he did what he had to do to make it, but he wasn't, it wasn't really who he was. Mm -hmm. Now, when I say there's precedence, you see this motif a few places. I mentioned it in the unforgiven, right? Because at the end you have the old man who's already lived through the, the old West and the frontiers life. And he was an outlaw. And then you have the young man who wants to be that, but it's too late. Like that time is gone and he can't and he doesn't have the stomach for it. Another example of where this motif shows up, and I'm going to be doing an episode about this, mm. is the movie Valhalla Rising. Uh, have you seen that? I have not, but it is on my list. It is. I've heard good things. <laughs> very Kino. It's one of the most Kino movies you'll ever see. It's <laughs> one of the most masculine movies of all time. Uh, the most testosterone driven, a uh, purely masculine. I don't believe a female shows up anywhere in the movie ever. Uh, the, that's uh, the appropriate Bechtel test, by the way. Yeah, right. <laughs> Nicholas, uh, I, if there's no women in the movie, it's probably a good movie. 
Yeah, I don't remember there being a woman in the movie, and it's Nicholas Reffin, and he. Oh yeah, he's great. Yeah, he's great, and the fucking mainstream hates him, and they shit all over this movie um, because it's too. It's too. This guy's like John Milius. This guy's like the re- rebirth of John Milius, and Valhalla yeah. Rising is one of the best movies of all time. You have to go see it. Um, but uh, what's his name? The Danish guy. I can't believe I'm blanking on his name, but he's one eye. In the movie, he's only got one eye. Mm. And he Matt's was, Nicholson. Uh, Matt's, Matt's yeah. Nicholson. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Just in case our audience does, I'm just giving some context here. Uh, winding reference to the one who made Drive. <laughs> and yeah. um, no, uh, too, too old to die young. And yes, he, just, I don't know. I figure some people in our audience has probably seen Drive, but but might not be aware of. Oh, yeah. I would suspect all of her audience has seen Drive. Right. Yeah, that's like right. That's one of the main <laughs> movies, and I got I got a lot to say about that movie too. But oh, it's, I'm sure it's off the, it's off the topic. But but um, I sorry for my, sorry. For no, that. it's okay. Uh, but it's yeah, okay. Matt's no, about Hell Rising. Uh, about Rising. Yeah. Oh, I was just talking about right. I was just talking about how the motif of the character born. Uh, too late or too early. And this goes back to everything I'm saying about Mishima, right? Mishima is the avatar. I think the reason why Bap puts it, promotes him so much is Mishima is the fucking avatar for all of us who feel like we were born in the wrong time. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, in Valhalla Rising, this dude takes a stage into like a gladiator who's, you know, his uh his cat and he escapes and he's the fully grown man he fully embodied who who was a christian boy like you know born because because is from from norway or whatever so he was a pagan with him and he goes on his whole entire adventure with him and he's the kid from another time or for the future and i think the kid represents uh the future of western europe the synthesis of pagan and christian europe to birth New uh, Western Europe uh, Christendom after the year 1000. So, so the motif, the killing machine who embodies that era and that type of manhood, who's got the younger sidekick with him who like isn't really cut out for. It. And I think the kid is that younger kid who's not really cut out for. It. And why I put it in an essay with Apocalypse Now and Colonel Kurtz is because that predicament and that state of affairs and that relationship is what Colonel Kurtz is talking about when he tells the story of inoculating the children uh, and then when they leave the village the Viet Cong come in and cut all their arms off yeah right and I say in the essay that this is not a country that has any fucking business in if you go there to inoculate their children you do you have no business invading another country because you don't have what it takes to to make war on another person, another people and and do what it takes to win. And Colonel Kurtz recognizes that. And Colonel Kurtz, when he saw that, he realized, like, fuck, I'm on the losing side. I'm with the wrong people. These are the guys who yeah. have what it takes to be the, the true warrior spirit. And he defects and he goes to the other side. And, you know, I'm going to dedicate a whole episode to Apocalypse Now as well. So I don't want to like give away my read of the movie. But basically, like, I don't say this in the essay, but 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 James Frazier spends a lot of time in the Golden Bow talking about like the, the ritual killing of the king to like usher in the next generation. And that if you don't kill the king, like with the ritual killing, like he gets old and sclerotic and it turns into like a gerontocracy 
and the, the culture can't thrive anymore. And John Milius was thinking about this explicitly with it, with, you know, um, the killing of Kurtz by by Martin Sheen, because the Golden Bow is seen on the shelf in the background in one of yeah. the scenes. I think it's in the scene with Kurtz, but it might have been in the beginning. I can't remember now, but it's it shows up in the in the book. But it, it it's not a, it's not as cut and dry as that in that movie because because I mean, uh, Charlie Sheen doesn't kill him in order to like take his place. He kills him to remove him from the milieu, the military milieu, and the military scene, so that he doesn't fucking become an example to the other soldiers. That like you can go off the reservation and you can become of your own fucking demigod in the jungle and become a warlord. It's just like the the the, the judge removing the kid and death removing uh, the crusader in the seventh seal. Like this guy who's embodying this other type of man, this other type of manhood and manliness needs to be redacted because yeah. he is going to awaken that in others and we will not have the fucking order that we have. So it's not really like the ritual killing of the king to like, uh, you know, changing of the guard at all, even though Milius like put that in there on purpose, you know, or, you know, I guess Coppola could have done it too, but you know, I talked to, I talked to, I had the, one of the highlights of my entire life was to talk to Amanda Milius. Yeah. And uh, one of the things she said to me off air, cause we were talking about that movie. We never got to it was that, uh, her dad, you know, of course she would say this, but, but just, you know, go with it. Uh, that her dad was like way smarter than he was given credit for. And that some of the stuff that the actors were given credit for, for like putting into it or that the directors were like, he already had, like he had a vision, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, Apocalypse now, according to her was his vision and Coppola. There's a documentary where it says like Coppola is like, okay, I don't know if I can pull this off. Cause this is fucking crazy feet. If I can't do it, uh, George Lucas is going to take over. And if George Lucas can't take over, it's going to go to Milius. Like Milius will be the director. Yeah. So like, I think his, I mean, whatever, I don't know. I guess I'm speculating, but I really, I revere Milius uh, probably more than anybody else in Hollywood, mainly for Conan the Barbarian and, uh, and Apocalypse Now. No, um, so I, absolutely. To... I mean, to, to pivot slightly, but also kind of pivot back and like bring some different elements together here. Uh, why, why don't you think there's ever been a movie of Blood Viridian? Like, it, it seems like, and I'll give my answer in, in a nutshell. Uh, it seems like there's a lot of stuff in it that would lend itself really well to the cinematic form. I mean, just imagine that last post-hole digger uh, epilogue and everything and all the symbolism there. And obviously there is a lot of cinematic stuff in it. But I, you know, from I, I haven't researched it extensively, but I don't think there's ever been even you know anything really significant uh written uh like any scripts written based off of blood meridian and i don't think it's ever really had any prize do you have any thoughts on that like what what about blood meridian is like unfilmable or yeah what anything i say will be pretty speculative right i don't course, think but... there's i don't think there's anything out there explaining why except james franco bought or at least uh, bid on. I think he purchased the rights to that. I think James Franco did has he? Okay, the rights. And you know more about it than me, but I wouldn't doubt it because he did make a movie of uh, some Faulkner. Yeah. 
Well, he made a, a movie of Child of God as well. The right, I haven't seen it, but yeah, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, he did a decent job. I mean, Child of God is good enough for sure. Um, I remember I like somehow talked to to the star of that movie on Twitter. I say star; it's a very small movie. Uh, but he was a nice guy, and he was he was appreciative that I said he, he did a yeah. good job. What's that stuff. guy's name? Out of curiosity, uh, I'd have to look it up. I don't remember now. Yeah. Anyway, but um, so so they they I they tell me James Franco owns the rights to that movie. That's fascinating. Uh, yeah, and people say it's it's unfilmable for like X, Y, and Z reasons. I don't know if that's true. Like the first thing that comes to mind, of course, is like the relentless violence. But if you watch. Uh, if you watch uh, Game of Thrones, I mean, it's not mm-hmm. really any worse than Game of Thrones. Like, I don't really think there's anything in Blood Meridian that would be aff- more offensive than some things that I've seen, especially some things in Ga- Game of Thrones. Um, so I don't exactly know why, but I I like to think that it's because the book is so revered and so highly respected that like nobody feels up to the task of taking it on. I think that's ultimately what it is. I hope that's what it is. And not only that, not only that people are not up to the task, but also that like, it just maybe shouldn't be done. I don't, I I hear, um, uh, Brady Sonellis talks about this on his podcast a lot. I think it's accurate. Good books don't always make good movies. Um, yeah, right. Bad right, books right. can make good movies. Uh, it's like they are significantly different art forms. Now, some books are a little more cinematic than others and lend themselves pretty well. But a book like Blood Meridian, the things it accomplishes with its language, you just can't translate that to screen. Or if you if you can, you'd have to be pretty fucking special to do so. So I think that... Um, yeah, I think that people aren't up to the task and like maybe shouldn't even try it. It's just too much of a beast. And yeah, for as for as clearly as I can imagine certain scenes, um, I just don't think it would uh you know tra- the, the Cohen brothers did a really good job though with no country. Oh, absolutely. Because oh, that book, yeah. that book is very cinematic. And we were talking about this a little bit with like this with um with Dan and I in prep for this, the the stylistic shift in McCarthy. I haven't read nearly all of his books, but I've read Blood Meridian and I've read some of the more recent ones, including No Country for Old Men and The Road, both of which have movies uh made about them. I haven't seen The Road. Looks okay. Uh No Country for Old Men. Yeah, you don't you don't need to see it. It's not terrible, but it's like doesn't yeah. add anything. Yeah. It's all right. Um but yeah, no, I think the, the, his later books become you know, he's kind of operating in a space that's somewhere between Faulkner and Hemingway, I would say, to oversimplify a bit, because he's very much his own style as well. But you could, you know, there's there's a, a there's a Hemingway element to McCarthy and a Faulkner element. And he's it seems like he's kind of gotten a little closer to the Hemingway element later on, and that those books are a little more they're a little easier to read well, on some level and, and a little more cinematic. But what were you there's say? a reason for that. Not to <clears throat> interrupt you no go uh, i'm curious to hear because i was thinking about it earlier yeah yeah no there's a reason for that and I mean, it's, it's it's very astute observation that to liken him to hemingway in that sense because uh he was moving towards uh writing uh screenplays and like he wrote a screenplay and a play uh so he was very much thinking about like being a, a film writer and his movie his books being turned into movies the last two in particular like he overtly knew uh i don't know if he had like a deal yet but he, he had worked in hollywood like writing uh mm-hmm. there had been a movie made i think it's called sunset limited and then oh, there's also a, 
yeah, there's also a play. I just can't remember if the play was separate or if Sunset Limited. No, I think I think I think it was a play and a script. Um, so he definitely had it in his mind for No Country Old Man for Old Man in the Road being turned into movies. Whether or not the deals came through before or after he wrote them, I don't know. Uh, but that would totally explain what you're picking up on. Yeah. Interesting. Because the way we broke it down and the discussion it led uh, for me and Matt was um, how obviously he's a very masculine writer and how even in the context of um, masculine themes and, you know, masculine styles, you have, um, you have writers like Hemingway who have a very sparse, stereotypically masculine style. And then you have more uh, verbose writers uh, like Faulkner, Fitzgerald, and yes, uh, earlier McCarthy. And um, yeah, nevertheless, even though kind of the long winding lyrical um, style is uh, less stereotypically masculine, it still uh, packs a punch. That's for sure. Definitely McCarthy. It does, you know, it's, uh, I mean, I would say with Faulkner. Oh yeah. It's like, and uh, it's, it's, uh, it's very colorful writing, but is not floral. It's, yeah almost lurid in parts and it's just yeah there's really nothing quite right like it it's hard to describe but it's um that that's a really good word floral i like that a lot uh did you guys see um did you guys faulkner's tough faulkner's actually the most difficult i've ever read yeah Uh, for sure definitely um did you guys read absalom absalom or see the movie django unchained I've seen Jay. Uh, I started Absalom. Absalom. Yeah. I did not finish. <laughs> I couldn't finish it either, dude. But uh, I, yeah, I, I, I did see Django and Chase. <laughs> I couldn't finish it either. But uh, yeah. so, um, but I did read a lot of it and I couldn't make hide no hair of a lot of it, um, which is funny because yeah. like, like uh, as I lay dying in the unvanquished are like totally different. The prose is like very clear and, and concise. Yeah. Well, but, the uh, interesting thing—I don't mean to cut in. No, but please in go ahead. This, the sound and the fury, like it, it's so interesting that he and in that book that he writes from four different perspectives, and the virtuosity needed because, like, not only does he write from different perspectives, but his style changes, and it's like it's amazing to be like reading a chapter and like the the son um quentin he had he's more of a philosopher so it's meandering ponderous language and then like the um the older son is like a salesman or something like that and he's like a kind of aggressive unhappy guy and so like it's more like kind of like comedic but also like stark language and um, yeah, to like, as you know, as, as being a writer, to be able to kind of experiment with different styles, that's, yeah. um, you know, that's an evidence of talent. Yeah, I, I can't even imagine. And it's, it's ballsy, too. Yeah. But uh, yeah, you know, I after I failed to finish Absalom, Absalom, I didn't even pick, <laughs> I didn't even pick up uh, uh, The Sound and the Fury. But but you you said like one of you guys said, I don't know. I, I feel like you were st- like when you said um, Faulkner is like a masculine writer. And did mm-hmm. you mean like his prose is masculine or like, well, just... his his themes. Right. And his subject his, like, yeah, yeah. Subject I mean, maybe, maybe not as obviously as Hemingway or even McCarthy, but nevertheless, he's right. 
he has a I don't even want to describe it stupidly. Just the way his view well, on the world is 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 not sugarcoated. It is a masculine. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, crucially, he's dealing with the issues of being a man. So, and that like, too, of course. That, you're yeah. going to be a masculine writer if you're concerned with what it means to be a man. I mean, regardless of you know how you decide to answer that question, you know, you're you're going to be uh, discussing it in you know masculine way. Yeah. 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 I but I bring up Absalom Absalom because um I never thought about it like this before until you said that but there's uh the Absalom Absalom is about like a college kid who goes away. I think he goes to like Princeton or like a Harvard. He goes to an Ivy League school, but he's from the south obviously. <laughs> and he comes back and he's like going through his mom's or his grandma's house or something like that and he's like re- uncovering like the past of his family. And you have this stark contrast, just like what I'm talking about with these other works of this young, you know, academic man who goes to a city to like become like start that type of life coming back and like rediscovering his roots as, uh, of of his family of like this masculine man. And one of his ancestors, like um, I don't I think it was his grandfather, his great grandfather had this like reputation for being this like big burly brute. And he like staked out just like in Blood Meridian. He like staked out where their house was going to be. And he like, you know, cut down the trees himself. But but he also had this fucking clan of slaves that were like fighters that he like used them to like go and fight other people's slaves. And they were like the most badass f- slave fighters of all. And he was known to be able to, like, fuck them all up. Like, he was, like, the toughest one of all of them. And I, I mentioned Django because that I always wondered if Leonardo DiCaprio's character was based on that guy. You know what I mean? Interesting. Because, yeah, because yeah. he has the slave fighters. But I'm now seeing this contrast between the man of, like, a later, more civil and subdued time and the manhood of that. And the bug man, you know, last man, the Nietzschean last man contrasted to the t- man of an earlier time who's, you know, much more virtuosic, virtue, yeah, vitalistic. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I but I now I got to go back and finish the book um, that that is the toughest book I've ever read in my life, though. I didn't make it. I think I made it 200 pages and it's like maybe a 250, 300 page book. Yeah. Yeah. He's he's. <laughs> you know, style has a way of kind of like winding back on itself and the language is, you know, sometimes a bit impenetrable. Well, McCarthy has like really beautiful prose, uh, stark, beautiful prose. Whereas like, I don't, I don't remember Faulkner having that except in As They Lay Dying. And even, and even in As They Lay Dying, it's like few and far between. Right. Well, yeah, that's where it's like in between, you know, Hemingway and Faulkner. It's like a, a little bit of that Faulknerian, uh, again, I don't, I don't know how to describe it quite, but a little, you know, not, not quite stream of consciousness, but, you know, very, very imagistic writing, but then like grounded in that Hemingway, uh, masculine, uh, very to the point style um, makes McCarthy a really happy, happy medium. I mean, I've read Hemingway, I've read McCarthy and I've read Faulkner. I think McCarthy is probably my favorite of, of those three writers because I think, he splits the difference between the other two really well. Yeah, that's that's a really good way to put it. I think he probably does have the best prose. The only honestly, man, 
I, I wish I spoke in other languages because I could have a better perspective on, on this next uh, point, this next observation. But the only prose I've ever read that holds up to McCarthy's that's a, as good as his is in translation. Uh, Borges, for example. Yeah. Not, yeah, not to say that McCarthy is like Borges, but the prose is just as rich. Borges is more uh, f- frequently... You know, because with McCarthy, too, it's like few and far between where he has these like really stunning passages that stay with you. And Borges, sometimes the whole story is like nothing but that. And it's like musical, like dancing through a story and the images and the metaphors and the and the. Yeah, it's almost like prose poetry, but it's of course, it's in translation. So I I have to imagine in, in Spanish, it's even better. And I don't know, you know, if you've read the original Spanish, if you could even compare him to someone like McCarthy. I, I, I wish I, you know. My, my Spanish is not that great. I have actually read a little Borges in Spanish, but um, my, you know, I, I was barely able to read it. So I can't, uh, can't opine really. Have you read him in English though? Like mm-hmm. in any extent yeah he's oh yeah no no i like borges quite a bit he's a big influence on zero you can see oh yeah yeah, we we talked talked about about that that. zero bit yeah yeah shit i gotta go back and listen i i listened to no it's all good yeah well again obviously you've done your own interviews with a lot of these folks so you're you're familiar with what they have to say but you know hopefully hopefully every interview adds a little something different to the uh no, it does. It feels great to be like on the podcast circuit because there are people, you know, especially like academics, dude, especially fucking guys who wrote a book for some university press that they work for. <laughs> um, and they're going on the podcast circuit, like pitching the book and like each show, they say the same thing. You know what I mean? Which yeah. which I guess, you know, I don't want to hold it against them. I've never written. Yeah, no, we all we all repeat ourselves, but like. But no, yeah. I don't feel like our guys do that. I really no. don't. Like I don't zero zero's interview with you and with me is nothing like it's each other. They're totally yeah. different. And same with uh, Roig, Nationals. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, he came on my show and taught. We talked about one of his essays for like half the show or more. You know, there's and always the dude- uh yeah, there's always a million different uh, to give you Borgesian about it. Actually, there's always a it's a garden of forking paths. There's always a million different ways to, to go a million different directions. And there's so much going on in our sphere. And there's, yeah. everyone has so much writing yeah. out there that, you, you know, I mean, I, from this conversation, I feel like we could probably just talk for hours. I, I think yeah. one of the issues is that like in the normie podcast circuit, they exist as vehicles. They exist as vehicles to promote. Yeah, I know, man. I know. I, yeah. yeah. <laughs> just getting started. <laughs> Yeah, no, I was just saying the Normie podcast circuit, they exist as vehicles to promote books and promote movies and what have you. Whereas like what we're doing here, like we're actually trying to have real conversations with people. Yeah. And um, yeah, so every episode is going to be a real conversation because we're, we're you're not trying to sell your book on our podcast. Like, y- yes, maybe, you know, you want people to listen to your podcast, but the real reason you're here is to talk to us. And yeah, that's the reason we're here. It's the conversation. And uh, I, you know, we did a little bit of banter off air. So if I'm repeating myself, I don't think I said this on the air. I meant to say it in the beginning. Uh, you guys are coming on my show. I mean, it has to, it has to happen. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I, I remember now that. I mean, I got to um, promote my books. <laughs> that, well, that's what I was going to say, dude. Like, you guys are both published with Terror House. And, like, 
I mean, I think what that dude is doing is fucking badass. And someone once said to me that he's one of the most prolific selling independent publishers in the world. I don't know if that's true. I hope it's true. Uh, yeah, he might I be. Mean, he, 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 so Matt Forney, uh, you know, he used to be like a manosphere guy. I, I don't know what yeah. all the details are, but he definitely was self-publishing books. Like, you know, now a lot of people do, but like not a lot of people were doing it back then. Um, right. So I, I don't know if he'd ranked like world class or not. I'd be curious to hear from him. But like, uh, no, definitely he has is a six. You know, and he's got a lot of enemies too. But like for the most part, is a is a success story at um, promoting himself online. And yeah, uh, man. Yeah, Terrorhouse is a great kind of development of his career. I mean, he's he's been involved in a lot of different scenes. I think he himself would say he's had some kind of false starts and stops, but. You know, he's been doing Terror House for like four or five years now. Uh, it seems maybe maybe a little less time than that. But I, I know the idea has been around since at least like 2018. And okay. it really seems like he's kind of finally, Matt Forney has like finally hit his hit his niche. Uh, and that, you know, Terror House is a, is a big success. Yeah, and you guys had, uh, not Matt Forney, you had uh, Billy Pratt on. He's one right. of my favorite dudes. His book was great. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I just tweeted this today that uh, Matt Forney is single handedly keeping the spirit of like rock and roll literary fucking outlaws alive. Oh, yeah. Like some of this. Absolutely. That, <laughs> that guy tweets, man, like I just posted this video today of Alp Jorgensen. I don't know if you guys know who he is. He's the lead singer of Ministry, which is kind of yeah. like an underground. I mean, I wouldn't say sure. underground, but they, they're an they're industrial short... metal band. Yeah. Yeah. And and he's like talking about how fucking crazy the scene was back then. And I'm just like, it, it's, you know, it, part, part of my whole problem, like before I came here, it's like, I was like that fucking that's gone. Like that type yeah. of guy is gone and that type of culture is gone. And I, right. I discovered it here and Matt Forney embodies it like zero does. And like BAP does, like he is that fucking spirit of the, like, <laughs> crazy fucking rock star playing heavy riffs like getting fucked up and like n like crashing and burning but somehow like still going like well yeah like you, yeah yeah you bring up a good, go on sorry no 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 i'm just saying like the dude should be crashing and burning but instead like he's still driving forward and like still going and like that spirit isn't dead it's just underground and like yeah. that dude is one of the people that that has it definitely absolutely and, and like, like back um, Go on there. At risk of uh, sounding um, almost like I'm inflating us too much, I think this does tie into the Blood Meridian conversation. The West has been closed since, what did you say, 1890? 1880. 1880. Uh, and, you know, maybe maybe we're all kind of bug men compared to, uh, you know, the bandits who, who founded, you know, new, new, new nations but you know it did live the the, the spirits that that sort of outsider frontier spirit i think lived on for 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 a while uh that subterranean spirit as Kerouac would have described yeah. it's lived on in you know bap talks about you know the, the the filthy edges of things it's lived on in varying degrees but one major place that it lived on was in culture and not not that i think that like getting smashed at like a like a rock and roll show in the 60s or 70s or, or, or even 80s or 90s. Not that I think that was like the absolute pinnacle of culture. It was still something. There was still a subterranean element where, where a certain energy was there. But I think what's happened in our lifetime is that even that, even that last pittance we had of some kind of frontier 
findable in something like subculture or rock and roll or yeah, basically the arts. Uh, even that has closed off. So now we have, again, not to inflate us too much because, you know, we're not exactly uh, out founding new nations per se yet, but we are, we are kind of subterraneans online. And, and I, I say, you know, I, I won't even apologize for that. Like uh, no, that, that is what we are. Correct. You know? It's absolutely um, correct. It's absolutely what this is all about and about, you know, cultivating the land uh, of this uh, subculture is all about, uh, you know. Well, when you when you still have that like that vibrancy in your culture and running through some of your people and you're not in that of that time, it's going to manifest itself in things like art. It's going to show up in literature. It's going to show up in music. It's going to be that aggressive sound uh, or, right. the, you know, the the Hunter S. Thompson, uh, you know. Yeah. yeah uh, even, and unfortunately, even, even it's going to also show, show up like, in drug use. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. Um, so there's, and you know, there's, 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 there's a positive and negative side to it. I think I, I am pretty, mostly anti-drug in my life. You know, obviously Hunter S. Thompson did, you know, probably did that more productively than some others. There's, there's all kinds of different ways. Some of them are quite degenerate and bad. Some of them, not. I mean, I'm also reminded of our conversation with Rye Nationalist last week. And another M3 said this elsewhere too. Like he talks about some bodybuilder or other talked about uh, lifting and lifting weights as basically war by other means. And yeah, I, there's things like sure. that. And that's a good example of something that's very productive. But I, I don't think it's yeah, like, I, mean, it, I don't think it's like sublimation in like a Freudian sense where you're just like exercise. I mean, it is that. Like you are exercising is, but, the energy. Right. But if you do that in a way that makes you stronger, and that puts something new into the world, whether it's you know bodybuilding or or, or writing or, or creating culture, yeah. um, you're at least doing something. And again, I'm not. Where does this lead? Where you know that gets into the biggest question of all is like, where is all this leading politically? Uh, I don't. Well, none yeah, of us know. You know but we're we're strengthening ourselves physically and spiritually. Just to sort of bookend this whole portion of the conversation, uh, to to bring it back to the very beginning is. Um, we have to struggle with Zarathustra because because I don't think Nietzsche is talking about a guy who sublimates this uh, warrior instinct into art. I think he's talking about the rebirth of the warrior instinct. And and, and our task is if we accept the Nietzsche's uh, diagnosis of the predicament that we're in and if we uh, accept his prescription, our task is to figure out like what to do with that. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Like, like, how do we go forward? So. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to ask you guys that when you come on my show because uh, some well, version of that question. But I, I'm really Matt interested in. Go ahead. Has actually kind of answered that. He wrote a very I, good I, essay, which I've I not keep answered it, called but I, yeah. the Renaissance of the Ritual. I do. I, I'm not and a in, Yeah. Well, you want you want in that it. essay, he um, he describes how going forward, um, we may not be at the point where we can found new traditions. But the old traditions have been contaminated to some extent. And what the work we have to do now is laying the groundwork for the formation of new traditions. Yeah, well, it's not even I have to not take credit because, like, I mean, I'm, I'm basically quoting and paraphrasing BAP and other frog Twitter people. But I, yeah, I'm not as prolific sure, sure. of a blogger as you, Astral. But yeah, that's pretty much the main substack piece I've written in recent memory was this piece that I again, I even the title is taken from Mike Ma 
the renaissance of well the yeah but you you added your own glass oh yeah no i like, i'm not, I'm not was, a, this was yours I'm not to, nah, not you to just try to be modest man but you just own it <laughs> um, this is your you got to steal that shit and oh yeah yours. no i i'm pretty sad it's We're, one of the better non-fiction things i've ever written and i'm very satisfied with the degree to which where i add my own flavor however i have to say that the the origin of a lot of the ideas uh are a lot of the writers and, and a lot of the figures that we've been talking about for this entire conversation and that the basic notion of founding a new tradition well that's not that's not me but i i kind of lend my two cents on you know what the way i've tried to kind of experiment with that in, in my life but um but the basic point definitely stands you know it's i think that and it did the quote and it is a quote from bap about laying not even founding new traditions but laying the groundwork making space um you know he talks about the ownership of space but in this case it's even just you know sort of cultivating the space or just finding the space uh physical or not uh where such a thing could even be possible because the the issue of course that that talks about you know is the ownership of space now everything is owned and it's this terrible condition that we're in uh but the question is you know what what are the what are this i don't even you know you gotta you gotta it's, it's kind of abstract to talk about but like what is the, the what is the spiritual positioning that we had to put ourselves in to even be able to start to think about what founding a new tradition will be like i think that's the that's what bap lays out the question for him and that's kind of the understanding that i've come into of our situation um you know thanks to a lot of frog twitter people but even you could even find that i think if you read uh blood meridian in the right way you know that this is the condition of of the west and of of our culture um does that resonate <laughs> yeah of course well, of co- go ahead not, not to be too grandiose i think that's kind of what we're we're all doing here i i know that the mission statement for new right our goal is to you know help cultivate uh, a space for new writers and new thinkers to get their thoughts out there. And I, I think uh, Astral, that's, you know, kind of your project. Yeah, too. Big time, big time. Uh, I, I like putting my own thoughts out in essays and I hope to keep doing it, but the podcast is certainly more about showcasing other people, especially since I don't have a body of work. I mean, it's great that you guys have your own novels. Uh, what are the titles again? I know you said it in other episodes. My so novel is not. Oh, yeah. go on, man. My novel is called Dragon Day. That one came out about a, I think maybe a year ago to the day, actually, in a maybe a serendipitous moment. Um, uh, with Terror House, Dragon Day. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, mine is called Nutcranker, and it has not yet been published, but it is forthcoming from Terror House. All right, good, good. Well, you guys will come on my show, and we'll. Uh... We'll promote those and we'll, we'll chat it out. Yeah, we feel like we just kind of scratched the surface of stuff that we can get into. So, uh, yeah, we'll definitely be happy yeah, I, to, to go on yours. Yeah, I get I really can't express enough how much I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to kind of lay out uh, that that whole vision with Blood Meridian and how Nietzsche's plays into it. And uh, Oh, no, it was great, absolutely. great stuff. Um, you know, and I would direct anyone towards your, your blog, but also I think you did a really good job of summing it all up and, and how it all connects. You know, we talked about Nietzsche, we talked about um, Crime and Punishment and Blood Meridian, and it's, uh, on your part, Astro, I think it's a very singular vision, and um, I'm, I'm glad that our show could be a, a place where, where, where you lay that out, um, and people can also, of course, find your work on your Substack, and, and as a frequent contributor to Man's World, are you going to be in the next one? Yeah, um, if I can get my shit together, because I'm so busy with this 
podcast and having a family and everything, I'd like to think I'd, ha- I'd be a much more prolific writer if I didn't have so much on my plate. But, it's, uh, writing takes a lot of time. I mean, that's but I yeah. I my Twitter, which, by the way, I should have said this in the beginning. It's at AFS cast. And I I don't I go by Dark Star there because I got suspended as Astral. <laughs> and then the the algorithm found me. So I can't use the same name, but Astral uh. just means star. Uh, so it's dark star. And, um, what was I saying? Oh, so I use like the threads that I do as like rough drafts for like the next, I, I don't know if you guys have ever seen one of my threads. I, oh, yeah. I, I no, try yeah. to do them every couple weeks. They're basically like rough drafts that like will get turned into essays or podcast episodes or something. Or at least that's the idea. And I did one on, um, the, the dragon's horde and the bank robber. And how like the the modern day uh, iteration of the knight or the group of knights, you know, laying siege to the dragon's cave to to kill it and take the horde manifests uh, in the bank robber. And like the bank is the dragon um, and the knights are the 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 robbers. And, uh, you know, th- these guys are the embodiment of this earlier type of man coming to the surface within, you know, greater society of 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 the liberal institutions. Not to say that word to that phrase so many times. Um, but but as you can see, though, that, that theme like re- runs through like my entire basically basically I have a Nietzschean read on culture and literature like yeah. like. The subterranean and the the time of the 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 man of the past uh, not yet being or or having gone by um, is kind of like, but I see it everywhere now. You know what I mean? I see it everywhere. There's other examples I didn't I didn't even throw out there. So um, and and I'm actually looking at taking that further. Uh, this concept of the bank robber and the dragon's horde to now which would be like the what i'm calling actually i haven't called them this yet this is the first time i said it out loud like the digital pirates like yeah uh, i talked about this with Melius because she's doing a movie on john mcafee right oh Oh, yeah that sounds awesome yeah yeah dude she's so fucking based uh john mcafee kim.com uh hans ulbrich or whatever i always fucking name (laughs) up the guy who william Ulbrich yeah. from uh, the, from Silk, the Silk Road. Road. Yeah, uh, these types of guys are like the the new and the hack and just hackers in general. Uh, anonymous, those guys, even though you know whatever, they're they're like supposedly like leftist anarchists. They're really just fucking. I did a thread on them too. They're really just like criminals. Those guys, even though they like supposedly had this like rage against the machine bent to their, <laughs> to their yeah. work. They were really what they were doing in their day to day lives though was stealing like mad amounts of money uh hacking people and shit um so those guys are like the 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 digital version of the bank robbers um and the the digital version of you know the bronze age pirate or whatever yeah no so that's potentially for man's world seven yeah he asked me to do it and i said i would but i haven't gotten to it yet. oh yeah well i get that because that's a big topic you know what i mean like if i i i see where you're going with it but like you could definitely, it, it sounds like something that could be hard to write because you're well, dealing with a, a some widespread phenomenon. Yeah, it's more because I have three kids. Oh, and that too, of course. <laughs> yeah. And that too, of course. 
But, All right. Well, we're, we're coming yeah, up cool. on like, I think like the two and a half hour mark. You may be yeah, man, a record I, you, for our longest show. I you may be our record great. here. Um, you may have uh, stolen it from Gio. From Gio. From oh, Gio, man. I'll never be able to out-talk Gio. I'll never be able to out-talk Gio. <laughs> you, you might have. We'll see. <laughs> I think you just did. <laughs> oh, just no. <laughs> but uh, but so we should wrap up for now, but we look forward to going on your show in the near future and just Absolutely. having this conversation. I mean, yeah. you're obviously welcome to come back on ours at some point, too. Like, we'll keep I would these love conversations to. going. Uh, but I will give you, you know, I was talking about your blog and Man's World, and obviously you promote your podcast, so I think you promoted a lot, but if there's anything else you want to flag to our uh, listeners' attention before we wrap up here, I already find a call no, comments from YouTube. No, yeah. yeah, I've been uh, been uh, honored. You guys have honored me, and oh. uh, I hope I hope I didn't you know lose anybody and make their eyes glaze no. over. Uh, no, I think we, we covered great territory here, and I'm, I'm psyched. Thank you for coming on. on. Yeah, yeah, you guys have a great show, man. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah, you do too. Right, of thank course. Thank you. Yeah.